Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. It is episode guest interview number 23. I'm here with my co-host, not my guest, Luke. And I'm here with our guest this week, which we've got a very great privilege of having, Dr. Scott Stevenson. Scott, how are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. Just, you know, day by day like everyone else. Yeah, yeah. It's a perfect yeah. time to record now because of uh, quarantine and everyone having a little bit of time to actually sit down and talk as well. Yeah, I, I got, I think, four podcast requests in less than 24 hours, one of them being this one. So, yeah, people are wanting to fill the time for sure. Yeah. This is going to be a seven-hour special. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we both got four till six. Okay. <laughs> the, I, the I've, I've done over three hours before, so. Uh, Joe's told me. Joe's told me you've had, like, three-hour chats before. Yeah. Yep. Easily. How, how are things over there for you, Scott, at the moment? Um, like we were just saying, I mean, I, you, we're all sort of uh, hermits by design, I think, you know, yeah. all three here. So no, not much has changed for me. I, I actually, I have had, I've had an interesting experience because I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I was actually on the road when all this kind of went down and I yeah. planning on doing seminars across the U.S. And I got, I did one in Nashville and then I went to Columbus and then they canceled the Arnold Classic and I did another one in Indiana swung by my hometown and kind of squeezed the last one in, in, in St. Louis. And then I got stuck. I was, I spent two weeks in the Midwest in uh, Mount Vernon, Illinois, um, because my truck broke down. Right. So, so I was there. I, so I got the experience and that's a, just a small community, like, like 15,000. And the time they had only had one person come through who had, who had been infected. And it, it was a trucker who probably moved on. So they had like literally no one. Mm-hmm. And the big box, the big chain stores like Walmart were starting to apply what they're, they're doing, you know, everywhere because they have to. But otherwise, people were relatively unaffected. Yeah. Uh, so because, I mean, in their, in their uh, microcosm, they, there's nothing going on. There's nothing to be worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and I thought, actually, I didn't try to hurry to get out of there, to be honest. I mean, it was, I wanted to go and I wanted to get back to check on my house. I had someone watching my house, but um like this is a pretty safe place to be, you know, I'm sort of, you know, out here away from any international travelers. I mean, I was the most international type of person that most yeah. of those people would run into. And I'm actually from that state. That's like my hometown's only a few hours away from there. So, um, and then I got back to Tampa and things of course escalated and everyone's wearing masks pretty close. Um, the talk mentioned before, like people are, people are, there's such some behavioral quirks, I guess you might see say yeah. that are, that are happening yeah same thing um, over here like i just it's, it's very abnormal so like, the only time I'll, I'll go outside is just to like get food or amenities or whatever and it's the way right. people are like behaving now is just so surreal it's crazy yeah yeah um people kind of sometimes people are more friendly i noticed yeah like i'm seeing more i mean i have a kind of a standard walk route that i'll do with my dogs i'm at the same time and more and more people are out at that time because otherwise they might have just gotten home and they're having dinner or yeah. you know, their schedules are flip-flopped and then um then some people are more standoffish you know because maybe they're, they're thinking okay like everyone could be infected and then like whatever yeah. you know sort of subclinical paranoia they have is starting to get a little a little more obvious so well, what's that on the topic of current times what what have you been doing with your own training squad right now so, well, I, I imagine I, that's an interesting thing to dig into. Like currently what's, uh, what's been the change? Yeah. Um, not, not a ton, to be honest. I, I, I had, I had limited resources. I posted these 
you might have seen them. I don't know on on Instagram. <laughs> I think they, they went viral. <laughs> did they? Okay, I, I couldn't tell because I know everyone was doing those, but yeah. um, doing that sort of thing. But I literally had no choice. Like there was like nothing around, and I didn't even have an indoor place to train. I was in a truck camper, which you know there was barely. Enough, I had to you know step over my dogs just to move around. There's barely enough room for the four of us. So I just went out and did, it was actually a blast. I actually had some really phenomenal workouts. And, um, you know, I, it's funny cause I, I guess I've, I've always sort of liked doing that. You know, when I was, I, I grew up, I had a, like a little, like DP was the name of the company, like this little, um, basic weight set. And I used to figure out exercises like, I, you know, there's the poster that demonstrate all of them and I come up with other ones and mm. it was just like that expanded upon. And I've always kind of like doing that. That's one of the things that I sort of feature in my Instagram is, is mm. alternate exercises because when you've been at this for, you know, three or four years, like I have, or 30 or 40 years, like I have, you got to figure out shit to work around all the niggles that pop up now and again. Yeah. So, but lots of people are finding out funny enough that they can do that too. If they're put in the pressure cooker to figure something out, to come mm. up with, you know, an exercise rotation. So I was, uh, my schedule then, literally I was on the road bouncing around. So I was training at the gyms where I was giving seminars or I got to go to a couple cool gyms back in my hometown. And then, then like everything was sort of in limbo. My mom needed to get back home. So I left the day early and then I broke down and then I got on the road and then I broke down. I got on the road and I broke down. I think I tried to leave three times before I finally got yeah. out of there. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was funny. The, um, like one of the guys, the mechanic who actually did most of the work for me was great guy, phenomenal mechanic, very, very bright. And there were times when he's like, I just, he just sat there flabbergasted laughing. He's like, how can this possibly be? Like, what is going on? What sort of vortex karma has keeps on bringing this guy back to me? Yeah. So the training was basically just, it was very much, you know, akin to, um, I think kind of what brought us together, uh, uh, like a fortitude training, you know, DC dog crap style training plan where I would just do like upper and lower, upper and lower essentially. Yeah. Um, and I trained one day and like the next day I was thinking, well, I'm going to be on the road. I won't train. And then the truck would break down. And, um, and I've just kind of stuck with that. I'm basically just kind of doing it and, and alternating upper and lower and with exercises that have been all over the place. And now that I'm back home, I've got my regular, I got a, a home set up that I'm, that I'm uh, moving back into. And uh, I'm basically, I'm basically switching. Actually today I did a fortitude training style leg, uh, lower body workout with a DC style split. So, so people will sometimes ask me, they're like, you know, aren't you, aren't you kind of being hypocritical if you don't do exactly your training plan as laid out? Yeah. yeah. And the thing that I've said from the very beginning <clears throat> is that when I came up with fortitude training, I basically, it's, it's like, it's like baking, baking something. You can bake various different kinds of cakes. You can bake pastries. There's all sorts of things that essentially all have the same ingredients. And, and those ingredients we can talk about, you know, today, of course, I think that's one, one thing you wanted to cover, but yeah. you can put them together. And, you know, you can eat, you can eat donuts and you can eat cupcakes and you can eat pound cake and you can eat, you know, go, you can go on down the list. And those are all made with, you know, flour and baking powder and eggs and sugar, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all delicious and they all can satisfy a sweet tooth, so to speak. So if, you're, if your goal is putting on muscle size, um, there's never going to be any exact perfect 
uh, recipe for that because everyone's going to change. And any of the listeners who've been out there competing for a while recognize that every prep is going to be a little bit different. That's kind of what makes it fun. If you try to do exactly what you've done before, then you'll f figure out you've probably gone awry. You've, you've, you're, you're probably going to need to change something if you want to be your best yep. in that particular instance for that contest for that year. Yeah. So, so that's basically what I've been doing is kind of riding with my um, sort of my intuition and the pattern that I was on, which I was enjoying. And uh, I've been kind of waiting out the shows too. I was playing, I competed five times last year. A couple okay. of the, the, the master's level shows. Yeah. <clears throat> and those are all getting moved back. And um, I'm not even sure if they're going to have them, you know, some of them. So was, the, plan was, was the goal to compete this year again or originally? Yeah. Yeah. But at one point, my, my goal was to have done all the, all the national level shows that there are in the, in the okay. NPC. And the only one I haven't done is the nationals. Right. And there's a new one in Los Angeles, which is called the Masters USA's. Um, which they had last year, which I didn't do. So both of those are at the end of the year. So I think we may be able to do those. So if that's the case, then I will probably um, start pushing up, so to speak, and change things around. But lately, my training has just been upper lower, essentially, and <laughs> using whatever nature provided. Yeah. And now that like today, because I've got this, this system at home, this Iron Master system we talked about before we started recording, um, and I was able to do, I basically did like a fortitude training tier three loading sets with zigzagging because I could do vertical leg presses mm. and knee extensions and, and hamstring curls. Um, and that was absolutely, absolutely awesome. I think, so, the, the, beauty, I think the, the real beauty of training is the versatility of being able to take different principles and blending them into something that you know will work and you'll enjoy. Like what you've mm -hmm. just said then about being creative, like Luke, you've got like a cable stack and a chin up bar at the moment, right? Yeah. And you're basically training and everything possible just with a cable stack and a chin up bar. So like, I know that Luke's someone that is like you, like you were posting Scott with like being intuitive and creative once you know, like, a, a good understanding of mechanics and just how to generate tension in a muscle, like your ability to just think on your feet and make exercises and challenges, it just becomes something that's quite fun. And Luke is Luke, someone that is, you know, you'll see him on Instagram and he'll have made an exercise for like hamstrings or whatever, because with limited equipment, but just knowing how to apply different training principles, you can make it work. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing too, it's, I think some of that, it's sort of like, um, some people have are just adept with computers and some people they just they get a computer screen in front of them and they just sort of freeze they don't quite know what to do mm. and i the way of like my mom is much better with computers now but for a while she like everything would just sort of throw her into a tizzy and i, and I said mom you're it's just imagine that you're a child and when you want something on the computer screen just think as simply as you can i want that gimme 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 it's like click 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 with your mouse it's like literally that simple mm. And if you're going to create exercises, if you can kind of just step back and, you know, you don't have to be, have a PhD in biomechanics to come up with new exercises in your home gym mm. with bands or a, a low pulley or whatever. If you just sort of look at it and say, okay, I got to, my leg's going to curl and that thing's going to move and I got to attach it. I'm yeah. Okay. I can see this. And I mean, what I, people don't see, I had some bloopers on those last Instagram um, <laughs> posts where, you know, where things got a little funky, yeah. but I sometimes go into the gym. There are days when I go in and I'm trying to figure something out. 
and like come up with a new exercise and I kind of have an idea, it's a flop. Yeah. You know, and I try a couple and like, okay, that's just not going to work. They're just the loading curve. just doesn't matter. It doesn't feel right from a basic sort of intuitive level. Like that just doesn't, doesn't feel like it's going to hit the muscle. I, I get, there's a huge sticking point and it's not going to work. So I just, I don't do that. And of course I don't film that. It doesn't, wouldn't help too many people, but knowing that, you know, it's okay to like futz around for a little yeah, while, yeah. especially with all the time we have, yeah. you know, unless you've got something to get to. Yeah. Play around with stuff. Go in there and you can even have a day with for those who are trying to figure out things at home or you just go and like try to come up with, with exercises. So then when you go ahead. What were you gonna say? What were you gonna say? Oh, so so that way, like if you have like a, a day where you're I mean you want to train and get in your zone and go, you're not like, you know, warming up and cooling down and then getting frustrated because like shit, I need I can't come up with a hamstring exercise. You've already yeah. figured it out the previous day. I think one thing that will hit home a lot with the following that we have, because like Luke heads up and James, who is on the team as well, they like lead the biomechanics and the mechanics part of our education website. And when people are being so analytical about this stuff, I think there'll be a lot of hesitancy to try things that they know could potentially they get wrong before they get it right, if that makes sense. So people yeah. want to make the perfect challenge, but then because they've got this ideology of having to make the perfect challenge within limited equipment as well, they almost don't try in the first place because they know they don't want to fail first before they get it right. Yeah. Um, whereas like this, like Luke, when you posted that hamstring variation that you did the other day, how many times did you record it or think about it first before you nailed it? It takes two or three goes. He's, he's going to say the first time now, isn't he? <laughs> no, <probably. laughs> no, yeah, I put that. I came up with that as I was writing some like program templates. I was going to, I'm going to put in the ebook, and I was, oh, this, yeah, this would work theoretically. I put it in. People tried it, and they were like, yeah, that kind of works. And then I tried it and tweaked a couple of things, and I was like, oh yeah, I can post that. And then I was like, hmm. and then yeah, it was three times, and it. So, and it it's yeah. the beauty of it though, right? It's like, it's that just being creative and it's trial and error. Yeah, and the changes that are made were kind of minor, but it kind of, the, the changes of those, the, the um, effect that those minor changes had was pretty big. But I think that's where, back to your analogy of the, sh of like the cooking ingredients, Scott, mm. like, you know, the best chefs, I'm not saying I'm the best chef or, you know, whatever, but, you know, the best chefs are the guys that will understand the ingredients and not be in, you know, kind of inhibited by going, shit, I've only got this to work with. They're kind of like, okay, I, I understand how this all goes together, what I can do, how I can change stuff about to create an, an awesome meal. Whereas you get the people that maybe look at the ingredients they've got and they get intimidated by it or they kind of get, you know, they switched off by the whole, oh, I've only got a few things to work with, so this is going to be shit. You know what mm. I mean? Like the ready ready cook program where they get a bag of random ingredients and they come up with something amazing right want to think about it. and i think yeah. that's the approach that people need to be taking of you imagine you're trying to take on the role of a chef you've got limited ingredients that might not go together well on paper but how can you make it work and yeah mm -hmm. is it going to be optional is it going to be the best thing maybe not but that's not you know we can't really be striving for optimal at the moment we've got to just figure out how can we get something presentable on the plate? <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know well, you know, I, I have a, a talk that I give. Um, I think I've just given it a couple of times, but it's quest for the perfect rep. Yeah. And it applies to exactly what we're talking about. So I, I go through, so you want to have like to match the contractile properties of skeletal, human skeletal muscle. You want to have less load on the concentric and more on the eccentric. So you have kind of optimal loading, lifting versus lowering. 
and then you got loading curves for both concentric and eccentric um, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I go through some of the physiology of, of what goes on there, but the bottom line is you can put all those things together, but variety is also, I think one of the important aspects of what creates a novel stimulus. And I, I, you can argue, I think that progressive overload is essentially a form of variety. If you keep on using the same load for the same reps, there's no variation. You, you're creating variety in the form of movement upward in weights and or reps. And you can also create variety. And you know this, if you've been doing, uh, let's say you've been doing rack deads for a while and all of a sudden you, you change to a little bit lower uh, dead and you add some bands or chains. The first time you do that for the same number of, of reps, same number of sets, same effort level, you get sore as shit. Mm-hmm. The activation pattern has changed. And that tells you there's some novelty there that's going to be, be driving adaptation. So even if you have, if even if you come up with an exercise that has kind of a sticking point, it doesn't feel right compared to the, you know, sometimes you sit on, sit down on a machine. You're like, wow. Like I think the engineer might've actually lifted who came up with this thing because this feels really nice all the way through. Um, It's okay to have those sticking points. And, you know, it's funny, I see this, I, I've forgotten about this, because the machine I have at home, it's an Iron Master, for people who in the States who want, want one, they're, they're actually sold out now, I think they, people went after them pretty rapidly. Scott, with Scott them. bought them all, he's got them all at home. <laughs> I got them, I can sell them to you for yeah. $5,000 markup, like people are doing with everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's got a little bit of, and I've, I've oiled it up pretty good now, but it's got a little, little bit of friction, more friction on the concentric than you would see on most commercial machines. At least I've noticed that. And some of that can be, if you're not pushing directly up, it doesn't have the same kind of a bearing system that you'd see in the Smith machine. And, but, so what I've noticed is if I train on that for a while, and then I move to free weights, and I do do free weights at home too, but if I go to machines in a commercial gym, I feel like there's, I, I'm stronger on the concentric. And I can, like at the end of the sets here, I'll, I'll end up, failing maybe a little bit prematurely because I get when you slow down the, the the dynamic friction becomes static friction which has a for the physicists out there that's a little bit higher coefficient of friction um, when things are together and they're not moving but when you get them moving sort of a, there's sort of a breakaway effect and the friction's less so if the thing if I slow down too much I'll just I'll just stick like yeah. on that last rep that would have been a grinder in a gym when I, when I train on this now, and those what you would call these home reps, like they're not quite optimal. Like someone who's got, you know, a band set up, it's like, you know, I, I really, I can't get that last 10, 15 degrees of hamstring of, of knee flexion that I want during those hamstring curls. Um, but if I fight, 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 you will get a specificity of adaptation um, phenomenon there. So I am literally overloading a little bit more on the concentric when I'm training here. And then when I go to a gym, I can sense that Mm. like things seem like they fly up on the concentric compared to what I was used to them being. So there's um, specificity of training applies to speed applies to the type of contraction concentric or eccentric. And it also applies to the angle in the range of motion. So if you take, you know, like in a scientific study, if you take people and have them, train doing just the last 45 degrees of knee extension one group and have another group train doing like 90 to 45 degrees on a knee extension um their their adaptations in terms of strength are going to be specific to the angles at which they train 
Yeah. You, you can see this with speeds. You train slow speeds versus fast speeds. Your nervous system, basically most of this is a neurological phenomenon, although there can be some muscular adaptations too that are specific, but you get better at what you do. So if you, for instance, are training, you know, in a suboptimal environment where you're having to really push past those sticking points in a way that you're not used to, I would imagine it would be interesting to see if anyone noticed, if anyone hears this now and notices this when they go back to commercial gym training and they find that, wow, I'm like, I'm able to drive through sticking points in a way that is kind of surprising. Like I sense I'm just somehow better at that. Mm. And that could be very well be because they were using sort of suboptimal in a way exercises. But what that means down the road then is they've got some variety. Um, you've created a different stimulus with that sticking point. Um, a different type of failure, so to speak, due to the, the nature of the exercise and the loading curve that, that it has. Mm. And then when you go to a, perhaps a better biomechanically, mechanically constructed exercise in a gym, say it's a good machine, the nice groove to it, um, then you can keep driving and maybe get an extra rep or two and get yep. a, a better stimulus out of that. So the, the having an optimal and not so optimal exercise, those things can actually interplay with one another. This is one of the underlying reasons I think why, why variety of training is so important and you get a little bit better at, at both and you get a better stimulus from both and then you drive adaptation in that way. So having a shitty exercise every once in a while isn't the worst thing um, because it makes you better at those that aren't so shitty. So to speak. Like I, a good example would be like, say if you took a prone banded leg curl, that's obviously driving a lot of load at max torque on the band in that shortened range where normally in a lying hamstring curl, you wouldn't get that max resistance in that shortened position. Unless it was right. <laughs> What's that? Unless it was a really bad machine. Unless it's a terrible machine. But like yeah. obviously building tolerance there when you're training at home for the next eight or however weeks and you're building tolerance in that short range with the band and then you go back on a, a machine hamstring curl and it's going to feel bloody light at the top, right? Yeah, yeah, you'll develop angle-specific strength where that band is limiting you when you're at home that then makes you feel like you can just blast through the last part of the range of motion on those hamstring curls. I've got... Um, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I thought, have you got something else there? No, that was it, that was it. Mm. So, see, the two questions would be if, if you... So one would be if you spend that long training you know, a banded leg curl, for instance, you're really only dealing with a challenge at the, you know, throughout the top few degrees of the movement, like gym, like relatively speaking, would you then lose some of the strength adaptation that you would previously have had in that, like throughout the ranges that you're not getting a stimulus in? And would that then maybe detract from when you go back to the gym, would you say? I haven't, I haven't seen anyone study that specifically, but if you look at the detraining literature just in general this this applies for the little bit that's been done with strength training um and there's been a little bit more with a, a endurance cardiovascular aerobic type things is that you can maintain um pretty easily if as long as your effort levels are high so that would be the key thing if it's if it's so crazy easy that it's that's like just the first 10 percent or 10 degrees let's say there's like you're just taking up slack yeah. in the band, then, then you, yeah, then you might, you might lose a little bit there. Um, so it would depend on how terrible yeah. that home banded exercise is. And, yeah. and of course, one thing you could do, and there's nothing wrong with this, and this is one of the things that 
not a lot, I don't see a lot of people doing, but you can do with the muscle round and fortitude training is as long as it's safe and, and the exercise lends itself to it, as you're doing those sets of four over the course of the muscle round, and especially if you're training with like tier one and you want to get as much variety as you possibly can, you would change, you can change your foot position, position let's say you're doing a leg press uh, just a little bit. Um, and there's a couple ways you could do that. Or you could change um, the way, if you're doing a tricep press down, you could, you could, you could change from, you know, bringing, keeping the hands out, bringing them out wide and then bring them close together. So each of those sets, you've got a little bit different activation pattern that's going on. And there's something to say for that because different activation pattern means training different muscle fibers or motor units. And that's going to lend itself to maximally or sort of optimally developing all the muscle that you possibly can. Mm. So if you've got something like that, let's say you're, let's say it's just kind of a basic banded leg curl. So people at home could actually kind of apply some of this and you're just lying flat on your belly and you've got it hooked on your ankles somehow. And like, you've got a ton of slack. You might, you might do one set where you've got very little force here at the beginning of the exercise. So when you curl, you've got, you're able to get a full range of motion. You get a lot of tension at the end where your heels are closest to your butt. And then the next set, um, you might just say, you know, this is going to be more the first part of the range of motion. I'm going to move myself away, stretch the band out a little bit more. I'm not going to get a full range of motion. My heels aren't going to come to my butt, but I'm going to train that first part of the, uh, of the range of motion. So you literally can do make adjustments. If you're doing three sets, you don't do them all the same, knowing that you're, you're, you're limiting yourself in terms of a loading curve because of the, the fact that bands aren't perfect in that regard. Mm. Your exercise setup isn't optimal. Um, you don't have like a cam or something that matches the human strength curve. So you just do things differently. You set up one where you load, you know, and, and initially not so much and more at the end. And then you have another set where you have more loading at the beginning and literally not much. You can't even get to the end because the load's so, so heavy. Mm. And then you kind of get a little bit of each. And that, that would be a way to maintain the, that strength at the beginning of the range of motion that you otherwise would lose if you just resign yourself to just doing one particular setup for that exercise. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you can do, um, and this, this might happen too with some home exercise, depending on what they are, but with the fortitude training, let's say you've got uh, quads or your weakness on your thighs. And so you might start off on, let's say, like a, like a hip sled um, type of leg press with your feet kind of close and l- down low. So you really tax your quads and then set by set, as you progress your way through the, uh, the muscle round, you might bring your feet out a little bit wider and just allow yourself to lose a little more glute and hamstring and posterior chain on those sets of four. So that literally you're, you're creating sort of optimal overload. You're pre-fatiguing the quads and giving just as much as assistance as you can over the course of the muscle round. So um, the quads are, are coming very, very close to failure, but not quite. So you keep on giving yourself enough mechanic. It's kind of a kind of mechanical drop set, so to speak, over the course of the muscle round. So someone could do that too, if they wanted to with, um, with bands is basically set it up in a way, depending on the exercise. There's a million ways that these could be done, of course, mm-hmm. so that they're, they're making things um, target in the way they want to at the beginning and then adjusting allow a little this is what cheat reps are about it's the same thing you know if someone's cheating like throwing some body english into us into a set um people say well you're not you know you're not using the the target muscle because you're not you're not isolating you're allowing your body but if you've got a good mind muscle connection 
and you're honest with yourself and you're doing this, you know, just to a limited degree, you can't really track your progressive overload so much because this is such a subjective type of thing, but mm. taking a set to failure with perfect form and then starting to do reps where you add just enough body English to keep the weight moving like a, like a really uh, a good personal trainer would who just, just gives you just enough to keep things going. You can do that yourself and basically extend a set in that way. Mm. So that's one of the things. Um, actually, I, I posted a video. It's kind of the opposite. I posted a video using um, bungee cords uh, yeah. just the other day. And it worked pretty well. I think those bungee cords were pretty old. I had to look high and low to find some matching ones. Um, a, couple, a couple of them have been sitting out of my truck for who knows how long. And I actually adjusted. I had to adjust. I could tell I was losing some stretch in them. So I had to step back a little bit as the set went on because I, I was they, they weren't they weren't holding holding out so well. So you can do that too during the course of several sets is adjust based on your fatigue and um, and where you're feeling it depending on where you want to feel it in the relative in the muscles that are involved in the exercise. Mm. So there's also and that's just like that's just kind of um, they call it the Joe Weider intuitive training principle or what have you, but like literally that's, that's the body is sculpting the training stimulus in the course of each workout. And as long as if we're keeping with fortitude training principles, you've got some way possibly you can do this with bands at home too, to sort of monitor your progressive overload, challenge yourself. Um, so let's say you've got a post where the band is and your feet go, you know, on this crack, in the tile of your floor, that would be where you'd go and you start progressively stepping back an inch each time you train, there's your progressive overload. Mm. You can do that at home, no problem. Mm. So. Yeah, anything that happens, I'd say you'd potentially then be changing the exercise as a whole, if that makes sense. Because obviously with the band, if you like, in the, I'm thinking the like, the prone leg curl, for example, mm -hmm. um, like what we spoke about, like you might start off where you're dealing with most of the tension, then you shift further along the floor away from where the band's anchored and then end up dealing with more tension and you're kind of changing the entire exercise. So again, progressing on it may be quite hard. Yeah, that one, that one's tough in that, in that case, but, but what you could do is simply let's, let's say you've got, unless you're lying face down and like you've got some markers, you could people, you can put tape down on your floor if you like. You know, assuming your bands aren't stretching out over time and you say, okay, I'm going to do, um, and it's hard to know because you, unless you've got like some way to see what your range of motion is, but if, you, if you've been training for long enough, you can have a good sense of this and you simply, I'm going to do one set with where literally I'm on, you know, the tape that I've marked as number 12. And then I'm going to, you know, do the next, next set with it at 14 and the next set at 16 or what have you. And you're going to see how many reps you get. And, and even if your precision of measurement isn't that great, it's like, okay, you know, I don't know my range of motion. Like I'm not like a, you know, a human caliper and then I know exactly what my range of motion is, you know, every time I do this, but let's say we're stuck in this situation for, you know, I don't know, a few months and you're going to use alternate that hamstring curl with another one that you have. Let's say you just got a kind of two uh, exercise rotation. And you go from doing 10 reps with the full range of motion that you feel right to, to eventually you're doing 14 or 15 after you've rotated through five or six times. Chances are that represents some adaptation, hopefully in terms of muscle mass. 
Of course, some of it's going to be neurological because these things are all brand new for people, yeah. you know. But even then, it, it's a better stimulus probably. Yeah, well, that was one of my questions of where we were talking about getting stronger in specific parts of the range depending on like the, the movement and the stimulus we're using. That's obviously not the same as building like muscle mass, right? So I think there'll be some people that maybe listen so far and assuming that if you do – because I know it's a term that's banded around and like regional specific hypertrophy, um, like regional specific hypertrophy, I know it's, there's more literature kind of emerging on that now right. to be able to like do that. Is that going to factor in or is it a case of, you know, we're not really going to see any kind of adaptations to specific regions. Like if someone does a um, prone leg curl and they're kind of only focusing on, you know, where there's challenge in that shortened position, are they going to see any kind of specific adaptation within the tissue there versus if they do it where they, the, the bulk of the challenge is, at the, you know, throughout the first 30 degrees of, of flexion at the knee? Or is it, or are we solely t- talking about the neurological adaptations and how that will then assist us when we come back to the gym? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, a, a lo- probably in this kind of scenario, a lot of that, those angle specific adaptations are going to be neurological yeah um that that's the thing in in, uh, another one of the the talks that i give i I go through in the mind muscle connection um talk and there's there's so many neurological phenomena that are in place to allow for us to get stronger and adapt to an exercise stress resistance exercise stress um that make much more sense from kind of a darwinian perspective because it's it's such an expensive process to put on muscle mass. You know, if we can like look at, look at a beginner who, you know, increases strength by 150% over the course of their first six months of training or something like that, or year, they certainly haven't increased their muscle mass by 150%. Yep. It, you know, it, it, may, it may have gone up by 25 or 50%. So mm-hmm. the neurological gains are going to outpace muscle mass gains tremendously when someone's starting out, especially and with these types of things, that's when it, what's going to happen. It'll probably explain most of what's going on in terms of those strength gains. Mm. The thing that, as far as the regional specific, a lot of times you'll see greater relative increases along if you have like a fusiform or parallel, like a, a bi- one of the heads of the biceps and like that, you'll see greater changes in the, in the middle. Um, mm. But eccentric training in particular tends to have greater effects on the ends of a muscle and the ones in the studies I've seen. So that's the thing I think that probably gives us the most hope for uh, sort of targeting along the length of a muscle where it, where it grows. So being controlled with the X, so just don't pull the pull up and hold and then just let the weight flop back down or the the band flop back down is probably the best way to do that. I, the, the thing it used to be thought many, many, you know, long time ago, there's just sort of an assumption. A lot of fibers just run the full length of a muscle, but they don't. And the motor unit, yeah, the motor units can be located spatially, um, you know, various places. Uh, I don't think that you're going to see like, for instance, if you just do like train the first half of the range of motion on a hamstring curl, that that's going to give you, uh, you know, greater gains on like one particular, area of the muscle because it doesn't make sense just from yeah. uh yeah sort of a physiological perspective to to put all of the fibers or the motor units on one end or one particular area you need to distribute the the forces along the full length of the muscle to some degree 
So otherwise you'd have like a lot of tension in one place and you'd have slack somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And like it, it, people would be tearing muscles all the time if they did anything of a ballistic nature, because mm -hmm. you'd just be like, you'd be contracting one half and the other half wouldn't go. And that just creates some force inequalities that would, would probably not be good for muscle tissue. Mm -hmm. So you have to sort of distribute the motor units throughout. And then of course, you know, move through Henneman size principle type ones first, et cetera, et cetera, that sort of thing. But controlling the eccentrics is important. So, and having, I think having a full range of motion um, in general is better. It doesn't, the, the, the data don't like say that's absolutely necessarily the case. Um, but, but there's a, I think a Brad Schoen thought as a review on that. And there are some studies suggesting that you get better growth when you do that. Um, so training, if you got a situation like this where you just can't have an exercise that lends itself to full range of motion, I think it makes sense then to adjust the exercise so that if you look across all of your sets, you're getting full range of motion mm. um, as best you possibly can. But, you know, as far as targeting, like trying to shape a muscle by, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's the case, except that eccentrics give you more at the ends, generally speaking. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think, because I agree completely on that. I've never, I've never really understood it because um, it will like, have, you know, have it well. I suppose having an understanding of, you know, skeletal muscle physiology and stuff, it, it won't make sense that you can do that, I think. And I think people that have that understanding would agree. It, it, and I think that's where like people hear, you know, like the prime kit where you kind of, and that's kind of, you know, similar situation of people loading, you know, the band where you're kind of dealing with more. Oh, right. Yeah. Like people do that on the prime and they kind of spout out, okay, I'm going to focus on the short range here. And, but they're the way they communicate it is as if they're saying, I'm going to hypertrophy this tissue specifically in the short range. And then I'm going to focus on the length range and mid. And it's like, it's not really how it works. You're just, you're going to, the adaptation is going to be more neurological, if anything. Um, but also you're kind of just making an inefficient movement when you have the opportunity to create a very efficient one. And I think yeah. that, I think the, the, like to distinguish between the neurological adaptation and the, like the muscular adaptation of what's going to happen if you focus, you know, create the biggest torque demand at a specific point in the range is quite important. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know exactly what that would mean to say you're going to kind of yeah. cause hypertrophy in the shortened. Yeah. Sounds yeah. cool. It sounds cool though, right? Yeah. <laughs> like you're kind of mixing up terms. Yeah. One thing that, you know, is would, would, would make sense is that if you're training one in the muscle in the, in more so a lengthened position um, yeah. and you're producing lots of more force and an eccentric contraction as well, is that if you can if you can lengthen the fibers and you see like changes in fascicle angles, for instance, um, when you compare concentric and eccentric, and those those when you change and this gets into some actually I covered this ironically enough in that last post I put up a couple of days ago, but um, longer muscles or, or muscles where the, the fibers are in parallel are really well suited for long range of motion um, because. Uh, you've got, you tend to have longer fibers there as well. And for every lengthening of a sarcomere in series, you get an additive effect. All those sarcomeres along the length of a, of a, of a motor, of the fibers of a motor unit are going to mean a, just a, a lengthening of the entire muscle. Mm -hmm. So that allows you to have, um, keep a muscle in that optimal actinomyosin overlap range, which is where you want to be for the most part. So if you, if you have that short range of motion that the sarcomeres can stay optimally aligned, 
for force production. And you've got longer fibers that are perfectly in line with the, the, the points between the two, two tendon, the origin and insertion points of the tendon, tendon of the muscle. When you lengthen those sarcomeres, you're going to get the greatest lengthening of the muscle overall. Another way to set up skeletal muscle, and I, 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 I liken this to uh, kind of like um, uh, a tug of war, where if you got all your people on one end lined up and each person can, like let's say, pull the rope one foot, um, and they're lined up perfectly in line with the way the rope goes, then you're going to get one foot excursion. Mm. If you, but you only have people lined up directly in line with the rope. If you want to get more people pulling on the rope, they got to pack themselves in at an angle. So, so fibers come in at a, at a penation angle, it's called. Yeah. And what that means is that if, if each of those people pull at an angle, you lose some excursion of the full muscle. Mm. You don't get the lengthening of the, of the muscle because they're pulling at an angle. It's not directly in line with the way the muscle lengthens and shortens. So if that doesn't, isn't the best thing for having long ranges of motion and think range of motion here when I'm saying this. But what you can do if you pack as many people on that, on that rope is you can actually end up producing more force. You can pack more fibers on there and you have more of a, a physiological cross-sectional area for force productions. So um, eccentric forces, and this does make sense, eccentric contractions are, are literally, as I say so many times, lifting weights is a, it's an abnormal, it's unnatural act. And if, if you have a situation where you're constantly lowering the weight in a normal everyday sort of um, during the course of evolution type of scenario, constantly lowering something would be kind of an odd situation. You're literally, you're, it's like you're being beaten by gravity, so to speak. So the muscle's always lengthening. So it would make sense then that you would change if you do lots of lengthening actions or you do lots of training with the muscle in the fully lengthened position that an adaptation that would come about would be actually literally changing the angle at which those fibers attach hmm. and having making sure there's plenty of, of muscle mass at the ends as well so that you've got good, good force transduction where the muscle meets the tendon. So full range of motion where the muscles in the most lengthened position does tend to change that penation angle. It will change the, the, the sort of the shape of the muscle to some degree. Now it's not going to like, you know, start giving people like, you know, Robbie Robinson, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger bicep peaks or something like that. But if you're looking for someone who, if you're looking for a way to, you know, get an extra, five percent and fully develop a muscle because you've been at this for so long and you just want to like make yourself as good as you possibly can training through a full range of motion is probably going to be your best bet as long as it's safe and having good tension through a full range of motion is probably going to be your best bet because mm. as long as it's safe which so, is something you've observed in bodybuilders haven't they they've done studies where they've seen changes in penation angle, haven't they yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, you, you do see that in animal studies. So, so you change that you can change the angle um, of penation that changes the shape. Um, Jose Antonio has a really nice review article on that topic. Sweet. Um, it's probably maybe ten years old now, but he goes through you know this idea. So you can change the shape a little bit, but um, your average person you know who who reads the instructions on the prime kit and says, "Look, you got to do one of each." 
and they just do one of each and they move to the next machine, regardless of what it is, yeah. it's probably not going to matter for them. They're like, they're nowhere near, you know, creating the amount of muscle mass um, where they would ever notice any difference or would, it's really worth worrying about. I don't think. Yeah. So, so a question there then is if you can essentially achieve more length in fusiform muscles, um, like the um, hamstrings or like sartorius and things like that, but potentially not as much length in like unipennate and bipennate muscles like the quadriceps, for instance. But the quadriceps, you know, being bipennate, unipennate, they would have more motor units in, you know, in, in more muscle fibers within their more motor units. With that kind of their the ability to produce mechanical tension in those tissues potentially outweigh what you could do in fusiform tissues. That that's the advantage of that architecture, the the panation. I wouldn't. You got to be careful if you um if you equate fibers and motor units because yeah. motor units, the fibers, they're innervated by a given a motor neuron. But so like those big, actually the, in those big muscles that are have an architecture where they you're packing in as many fibers as you can at an angle, and those are suited for big force production. You're going to tend to have a really high innervation ratio, lots of fibers per motor neuron, because those are the ones that are designed for big force and big power. Um, you know, quads, like you said, glutes are going to have a high innervation ratio. Those are super important for, for jumping and running and sprinting and that kind of thing. So, but yeah, that's the whole, that's the whole idea, you know, is to match those things. And it gets complicated because then you've got like, you've got biarticulate muscles, like you know the sartorius and and actually the hamstrings are are that way as well okay. um and and some of them are have angles and some of them don't so there's the biceps femoris is a fusiform parallel um head headed by headed muscle so um yeah we're getting beyond what people really need to think yeah, about so much this is like it's me. very cool stuff i'm thinking on that front i mean this could be applied because like it's something i've been doing and actually michael golden of integra has been doing where there's certain movements and I've actually been doing it specifically on quads, which is where I'm now thinking this applies more quads and, and arms really. Um, but and it's just, you have been doing it on chest as well, but it's where rather than having like a slower eccentric, I've been, and, and I did this and then Michael who runs Integra, you might know him or not. Um, he, he's like the, the exercise mechanics genius of the UK, uh-huh. <laughs> but he, he, um, he he mentioned he was doing it as well and i was like oh that's awesome i want to claim it first <laughs> but the um is basically where you would you almost drop the weight through the eccentric and uh-huh. then actively catch it at the bottom of the movement so you're still working through the same ways you're not really stimulating it to the same degree through the eccentric but you're then relying on the you know the increased inertial effects that would be present from accelerating that load against gravity you know okay in line with gravity and then, so you're having to produce more mechanical tension than you normally would to stop the weight. And then you're performing a slower concentric off the back of that with the idea of making the concentric portion of the rep, like the, the overall mechanical tension you're producing from the start of the concentric to the end of it, much greater. So that would be kind of maybe focusing on that side as opposed to the lengthening. Like yeah. More, so. And maybe yeah. using that with more, with muscles like the bipennate, unipennate, where you have that ability to access more muscle fibers and therefore potentially generate more mechanical tension. Yeah. The thing, the thing with having a free fall on the eccentric in that way Mm -hmm. is that of course you don't have tension there. 
And when you catch it, I mean, and there's going to be, you know, some, it's going to be a complex phenomenon, but when you sort of catch it at the bottom, um, you're probably creating something pretty, a pretty slow eccentric and maybe somewhat of an isometric. And when you bring it back up that you're creating a stretch shortening cycle. Mm, yeah, but the, the idea would be to do the concentric pretty damn slowly to compensate for that. So you just kind of catch it and stop. And then yeah, like kind of pause. Yes, stop. Maybe hold it for like one to two seconds and kind of create some kind of intramuscular tension, and then and then go through a slow concentric. Okay. So yeah, it, it it's hard. I would I would imagine some of that catching, like if you for instance, if you just have someone do just from a, a complete rest an isometric contraction, so to speak, on like an, on a dynamometer. Um, it's really not isometric. If the dynamometer doesn't move, it's really not truly isometric in the muscle because you're taking up the slack in those series elastic components and the elastic components in general. So when you catch it there, you're, you're, you're going to have somewhat of a concentric just catching it when you take up the slack, which you, which you allowed to happen as you let it, let it, um, let it drop. Um, and that's going to be novel and that's, you can't ignore that. Like that's, it's going to be a novel stimulus and novelty creates growth and you can grow from concentric only, but generally speaking, and there's, there's a, a review and meta-analysis that Brad, Brad did. And there's some, some pretty interesting papers demonstrating that the eccentric is important for at least, you know, when they start this, most of these are done with newbies, you know? Mm -hmm. So these aren't people who've been training as long as you guys have. Um, and to put on as much muscle you have who need to find something new and different in some way, shape or form to stimulate new muscle growth. But that eccentric, uh, not having that is generally not something that would give you more muscle growth. Mm. Um, you produce, you know, actually if you're lowering, lifting and lowering a weight, you literally have to use less muscle lowering the weight if you want to lower it yeah. because muscle produces more force and intrinsically and, on the eccentric so the tension that's produced during any eccentric contraction contraction with the same load um using the same is going to require less muscle mass and more force per unit muscle used that's just the nature of the beast and it's a matter of speed too um if you're comparing eccentric versus concentric so um you're going to miss out on in that case doing those you're going to miss out on the advantages of eccentrics, which are more force per unit area. Um, and there's a study that I, you know, that was, I think it was Hather et al. It was one of the ones that my mentor did for NASA. They're trying to figure out ways to combat uh, disuse atrophy during space flight because there's no gravity. So there's like literally no eccentrics. Every, you know, every time you, you just push yourself, it's a concentric and you float across the, the space shuttle or whatever, you know, and there's no, nothing to cause any eccentric contractions. And they had, they're using leg press and I won't go through all the details of the study, but they had one group that did regular lifting and lowering. They had one group that did chest the lifting. And then they had another group that did twice as twice the volume chest, the lifting. And by far the best results came from the lifting and the lowering. So when you, when you eliminate the eccentrics, um, especially the type twos, you weren't, you weren't, they weren't getting the same growth and it, they didn't make up for it, even with doing twice as much volume in this mm. case. Yeah. So like, that's one study that, um, that I, I know pretty well that kind of demonstrates eccentrics can be important. So, but, but, but then again, I've never seen anyone study that particular scenario 
Mm. You know, because when you when you do that and you catch, um, is does it require a massive amount of effort to to sort of? Yeah, yeah because it, yeah. I use it on movements where the inertia. I mean, to be fair, I'm using it on cables where there's a two to one ratio, so there's you're dealing with half the inertial effects. But it's a case of like if someone was doing it with like to to relate to this like a 100 kilo barbell if you lowered the 100 kilo barbell very slowly against gravity maybe do like a four second eccentric um and then change the direction the force you have to come up with to change the direction is going to be less it's going to be kind of equal to 100 kilos well more than 100 kilos obviously but maybe only marginally more than it would be versus if you kind of drop the 100 kilos through space the added speed and and weight that that thing essentially gathers from the added inertial effects of that thing wanting to accelerate to the earth pretty fast right to come up with you know potentially a lot more than what you would be if you lowered it slowly to change the direction so it's that initial burst where you say it's, it's mostly concentric and yeah there'll yeah. be put some of the kind of series elastic components and things like that taking up a lot of the strain as well which is you know a risk and maybe also a good thing you know, if you, who knows that's where a, a study would be cool but the um, but yeah, so you're basically the, the the force you have to generate within the active components of the tissue um, would be greater. Theoretically, you, you, you've got an impulse. That's yeah. what it. That's what it really comes down to. It's a for, It's a, You've got an impulse phenomenon where there is a huge spike in force that that has to be produced to yeah. bring that weight to a standstill. Um, so and and you know it, basically the. Uh, I mean, the force is equivalent to the force of gravity. If it's a true free fall, it's equivalent to the, you know, the force. I mean, it, the amount of eccentric work you do is another way to think about it. So let's say you're really good at those. And, you know, you, you only, you'll only let the weight, when you start trying to catch it, it only comes down like an inch or two. Mm. So you're producing a tremendous force impulse in order to, to cause that deceleration mm. from the free fall speed to zero. So that's, you could actually do, you know, it, with the right equipment, they've got some pretty cool stuff like that are it's set up on like a Smith machine. And there's mm -hmm. some, uh, some commercially available stuff as well that does this you can use and you can, you can calculate impulse forces that way. So, so, so that's the thing. Yeah. You could, you can look that up. There's I thought REL systems may have one. Um, I know Bill Kramer um, has done is used done a few things with this. Um, if you look for some of the some of the um, studies where they've looked at max power production as a function of um, percent one RM, and you see it a, like thirty or forty percent of a one rep max is where you get max power production, force times velocity being mm -hmm. power. And so they just have people test it, like have like do a squat or a some sort of pressing movement, and they measure power with basically one rep max and you know that's just you know power is not that great because speed is so low and then when you start dropping the load down eventually you get to about 30 or 40 and this matches skeletal muscle as well when it's in isolation and about 30 40 percent you'll find max power so um that kind of a machine could literally tell you what's going on in terms of what it takes to within a couple inches to bring from free fall to a complete stop. That's, that's, that's the thing that I haven't seen anyone, anyone yeah. study. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's a tremendous stimulus. Yeah. So. Yeah. Cause, cause we were, um, you know, we have a friend called Jacques Taylor, who's a kind of a neuroscientist. He's actually over in the States as well. Um, 
very, very smart guy. He kind of blends exercise mechanics with neuroscience and he does some really cool experiments with like EMGs and stuff, but he's one of the guys that actually, I would say, applies EMG relatively well. Um, temperature and and he you know, did one the other day where he was just doing a a normal bicep curl and obviously there was an impulse in terms of just changing the, the direction of the of, he wasn't kind of accelerating through the eccentric at all he was kind of very controlled but you could still see that initial change of direction required you know a, a right. good jump in the nervous system's output essentially how hard it was having to work to to you know the force it was having to produce and then it kind of leveled out as he yeah. started concentric so i think yeah it's interesting stuff and i think definitely something i look into because there yeah, um there are a, just a few instances where you see a reversal of Hedman's size principle that yeah. i can think of offhand and emg is has suggested that some of it's that those are in very powerful or power producing this is what this is basically a a, a tremendous impulse of force so like when like Olympic lifters, you know, starting like uh, doing a clean, pulling off the floor. And uh, the one that, um, the one that I, they actually, they've actually done motor unit measurements that I remember was with cats and they put the neurons and you can measure it, and they, they would put like a ball of tape on their paw and the cat's like, ah, and they try to flick it off like that. And, and when they're flicking, when they're going back and forth like that, you get, you can get a reversal where whereas whereby the type twos or the high what would normally be high threshold motor units get turned on just instantaneously a little bit before the what would otherwise be lower if you had this sort of a graded type of force task so you prop that impulse in emg and i'm not sure what what measurements he's making but that impulse in emg it may reflect what's going on here when you guys do that where you could be getting some preferential at least type two motor unit activation like you said it's a massive effort and so like the type twos this is kind of a this is a whole other topic too they tend to grow more so than the type ones would be larger at least in power lifters um and when they follow people you know and during many studies although there's some studies with bodybuilders that show that they don't they're about the same size um and some bodybuilders will tend to have lots of type ones, but those are people who are doing kind of high volume bro split types of training regimes. Mm. So, but the type twos definitely have at least the equivalent um, potential for muscle growth, for hypertrophy. And if you can preferentially target those um, in this way with this sort of an impulse type of phenomenon, then that's a great way to spur on new growth because normally those, those high thresholds wouldn't get hit until you're at the very end of your set um, doing your quote unquote effective reps as people are calling them now. So that might be, uh, that might be what's going on there too. Are you noticing your, I mean, it's hard to know with everything going on, everything's so, so messed up with the pandemic, but you notice anything from doing those? Yeah, Is I that put, a recent thing? I put on uh, 50 pounds in two days. <laughs> two, oh, two, that's, that's, I figured it might be like a day and a half, you know, impressive. <laughs> That's better than Callum's 100 Can't, can't, can't fit in any of my clothes. You're right, right, right. Just have to walk around naked, you know, <laughs> posing constantly. Amazed by myself. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've noticed, like, it's 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 not as – I thought it was going to cause quite a lot of joint discomfort and things like mm. that by having to come up with that much force in, you know, for instance, in like a leg extension when you're close to – you know, full knee flexion, but it seems relatively fine. I mean, I'm, I'm taking 
precautions there. I'm obviously quite aware that's where I wouldn't recommend it to people that aren't particularly skilled at training. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think there's definitely a risk with it, especially if you start introducing your more compound movements, which I have not done because I think there's far too much to consider there from a joint perspective and mm. pushing into passive ranges and all this stuff. But um, I think, um, no, I mean, it's been positive. Like, I mean, in terms of recoverability, it seems relatively favorable as well. Um, but again, like the, I mean, one of the reasons of doing it was, okay, how can we potentially reduce some of the, you know, the muscle damaging, um, like, you know, effects that would occur through a lot of eccentric work, but then, mm. you know, by kind of creating more of a challenge for the concentric, but then, you know, is that impulse, the force that you have to come up with at the bottom going to create a, a significant amount of damage in and of itself? Who knows? This, this is where, like, if there's anyone listening, get a study put together. <laughs> you, should get, you should get jocks to run the study. Cool. But yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot that could, be, that could potentially go wrong. It might not be helpful at all. Who knows? Did soreness? Go, did you, what happened with soreness when you in, in institute? Did you notice any difference in? Um, well, it's the thing. I mean, I wasn't. I was at a point where you know, in terms of like repeated bowel effects and everything like that, I'd probably say that soreness wasn't gonna be much of a not have much of a presence anyway, and it didn't seem to trigger much. That was the thing. So I was like, yeah. you know, that was. Yeah. One of the things I was like, okay, maybe it's doing it because I would expected it to. Um, yeah, it's novel, so you would expect it to. But I mean, it's, and soreness, I think it does play a role, and that's a hormetic effect. Like, if you want to adjust your soreness, just do less. Train as hard and just do fewer sets. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're getting too sore. So, uh, yeah, that's 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 the tough thing. I think is is uh, you might you might end up being more or less sore, but the soreness is just like an overall subjective phenomenon related to the inflammation. And it could be, there's various aspects of the muscle damage that could be bringing that on in a way you'd never know just from, you know, rating your own doms. Um, but if you've got with an impulse like that, you've getting something novel in terms of a preferential type two activation, like literally in the way that different exercises will diff- activate motor units in different ways. And the thing about the, the, the Henneman size principle and going from low threshold to high threshold is that um, what's going on along, along the way as well is that some motor units are dropping in and some are dropping out. Like some are, so they're, they're sort of spreading the load. So you might be able to like maintain a certain amount of force with using 50 motor units, but you're, your brain's smart enough, your, your, your spinal cord's smart enough to engage 70 or 75 of those, and some of them come in while other ones rest. So you're, you're rotating among them to prevent fatigue. So different exercises, while you're, you're using the same muscle and you're using the same motor units, are probably one of the things that's going to differ that may explain at least part of why you get sore when you do something you haven't been doing for a while is one, there's, there's not a good coordination among those, and there may not as be as good a coordination during the eccentrics. You ever notice like when a rate's really heavy, you get that shaking phenomenon, that's, that's from uh, an inhibition, um, and some motor units are being turned on and turned off. Well, that creates force inequalities as the muscle's lengthening, which probably damages the, damages the hell of the contractile apparatus. So in the way then that you've got different motor unit activation patterns with different exercises, you might be able to get with this impulse thing, like a, a different activation pattern 
um, in terms of maybe even some reversal or sort of preferential type twos that could make you sore, more or less sore. But in a way, I mean, one of the things, and, and we can talk about, you know, Callum's experience with fortitude training in the last, you know, few months for this last past year is that if, if you can find a way to train so that you've got the most potent dose possible, I think that's a good thing. If you can get sore as crap with just one or two sets, you don't want to be too sore, but if you can, you can, and I tend to be sore very easily. So I've always got that as a sort of feedback for myself. Some people don't get sore very easily, but the, the very nature of this whole resistance exercise phenomenon that makes it such a, a great way to produce muscle growth is that it's so, so intense in terms of effort and tension and metabolic stress. It's way beyond what we normally do during the course of our, our normal day-to-day -day lives. So it's that quality of, of the intensity of tension and effort and metabolic stress that is, is the, I think are the essential ingredients of the stimulus that makes it produce muscle growth. So if you can find something that, you know, just blasts the shit out of you in terms of soreness as being just one indicator, you can do too much and too little. Um, and people probably vary as in terms of how much tension and metabolic stress contributes relatively to muscle growth. But the more potent it is, the more you're taking advantage of why it is that resistance exercise makes muscle grow. So like, I think that's a reason why, you know, literally like to make it just a look, step back at the bigger picture, the guys who do the hard exercises are the ones who train the hardest because the hard shit works. The harder it is to a certain degree, you can just be stupid with it. But the stuff that's really hard is lends itself to hard training and a, and a hard training mentality. And the harder you train, the more potent the stimulus, the better it is for muscle growth. So if you can do, you know, like just like, let's say you do just two of those sets with the, what do you call those, Luke? The, Lydia? I don't actually have a name for it. We have to make a name now. Oh, yeah, eight, there's an H-reflex phenomenon that's in the literature. And it's called the Hoffman reflex, by the way. Do you know what that is? No way. Yeah, you can go look that there up. There you go. Yeah, there's a Hoffman reflex, yeah. Um, yeah, you can look that up. But I'll say you can call this – it involves stre stretch receptors and everything else. Like, um, So, yeah, so I'll say you can call it the H-reflex um, training phenomenon, but people will get – only a few people would get that confused with the actual <laughs> Hoffman reflex. But um, anyway, if you, if, if you can do, let's say, you know, all the things being relatively equal, half as many of those sets and just get just as sore, that tells you it's a more potent stimulus. Probably not a bad thing, you know? Yeah. Um, so soreness, like you don't want to avoid it at all costs. Um, the only time that I really think you don't want to be especially totally sore is if you're like trying to glycogen load before a show or something like that. Cause you know, the damage isn't good, but overall, you know, you don't, you don't want to be John Meadows hardly ever gets sore and, and look at him, you know, so he can train like a monster and get tons of stimulus there without having the, uh, the, the breakdown and, and the inflammation and things that comes along with soreness. So, but all the things being equal, if you get sore, that tells you you're doing something right. Mm. I think that one of the things there was, uh, the, where you approach the ability to manipulate tears on fortitude. Um, mm. Like I, I would have done something similar previously when I wasn't running that template, but being able to just see it on paper and manipulate it so easily was such a useful thing. But like you, you'll speak to Joe and like, 
when I first uh, spoke to Joe, I was like, I'm going to start on tier two because I think I'm, I think I'm man enough to start on tier two. And then after about a week, I was like, I've lost like 13 pounds. I'm going to go down to tier one. <laughs> and uh, wow. I, like, like, honestly, my weight just dropped because I was like, yeah. I was like two, two seven five, two eighty, and um, just couldn't just in a position where energy expenditure was so high each session that it just wasn't practical to eat the amount I'd need to push my body weight up further. And because wow. like I can myself in terms of if you give me a set I'm gonna like do it until I throw up or pass out or whatever so my ability to, to apply myself is high and that tier one where you just have one set to focus on per muscle group works so well for my my ability to like think going into a session just where I'm like I've got one set of hack squats and I'm gonna take that to death like right. in, a, in a safe environment like I'm only doing these exercises now because I don't have a hack squat but um, just having the ability to just have a small amount of workload that I can do on a frequent basis, but just be able to apply myself a hundred percent to one set and then track that over time. This works mm -hmm. so well. Um, yeah. Which is, it's, it's like the inter individuality of training as well. Cause I know for a fact that like Luke, for example, trains very differently to how I train and we both like to train in different ways, but then we're both growing muscles. So it's like there's, there are multiple facets of, of progress, which I find so fascinating as well. Yeah, well, that was interesting because I went, I, I tried before we were in lockdown, I was basically doing the fortitude approach as well. Um, but I just basically, I tried, I think I went on because I tend to tolerate a lot of volume. So I think mm. I went on you know, like tier three. Um, and I was like, the sessions were too long um, for me. Huh. And then I found on, I came to, in terms of the time I had in the day and stuff like that. And then I did a few of the muscle round sessions and I was like, this is fucking awesome. I was like, I basically just converted to just doing muscle rounds on everything, every session. <laughs> I mean, that's probably completely butchering it, but there was things I took from that. Like you say, Cal, of having to think less, I was able to make the sets I was doing so much more precise because my focus wasn't on, I've got to reach this number. It was, I've got to go in sets for four until I fail and I yeah. can make that look pretty immaculate at that point and the progress that i made in the two three months i ran that was insane um so thank you scott oh yeah yeah well you i mean yeah. it was up to you yeah. but yeah you're absolutely welcome for yeah but the, uh, but the thing is like that's where cows obviously like i could have ended up doing more volume there than he was doing but obviously that's you know still made pretty decent progress i think they get it you know and you'll be well aware of that score obviously the difference in the exogenous and endogenous variables involved in hypertrophy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, that's why I came with those volume tiers. There's, so some people will come to me and, and I actually have, and I don't suggest people pick this up, but people beg me for it. So finally I made it. I have a, it's called the Virgin Voyage. It's a, a, a daily trainer. You can get it on my website. And it, it basically, it has all three volume tiers and it has the exercises, pretty generic ones you'd find in most gyms, you know, set up for people. So you don't choose your own. And, and some people just want that. And it's more of, can be kind of a beginner's type approach. Like, just tell me exactly what to do. Um, and and John, John Meadows' programs are awesome. And they're definitely not beginner's programs. Um, but John has flexibility built in, in his programs as well in terms of certain training days. And he all, always says, you know, if, like, you do, if, don't be smart. If you've got a leg press that just makes, your, makes you feel like your patella are going to come flying off into the room when you do them, you don't do that exercise. So there, I tried to set up the, the system so those volume tiers were there as, you know, a, a basis, a starting point, and it gives you sort of structure. 
but you can, you can break away from that. And I have people who do kind of like some, a lot of people will do tier two for, um, days one and two and tier three for, for, uh, for days three and four, or, you know, tier one for lower body and tier two for upper body. And so it gives you like, you can mix and match all those things and it just gives you a, a certain guideline. And then they may find out after they've done, I've had people that have done dozens of blasts now that they have to just drop things down for certain muscle groups. Mm. So it gives you sort of a bracketing type of, of way to kind of know exactly what to do. It's written for you black and white. And if you're like Callum and you're like, and it, because it sounds like, like your, your, your mind is perfectly suited for a low volume DC training tier one fortitude training type of approach where yeah. you just like bury yourself with one and people, I, I don't think if people haven't, some people just will never do that. That's just not how they're wired. They just don't want to do that. It's like too much. It's too much anxiety, you know, knowing, okay, yeah, I got to go in. I'm with, this is going to be, it's like a, if you're doing one set of like a compound leg exercise, it's like a minute. You know, but even then it's going to be a brutal minute. It's going to be something that is absolutely extraordinary that probably, at least in the Western world, I'd say 90% of people, um, you know, or may, maybe more like 70%. There, there are some people who've done some athletic things, but most people don't want to do that on a regular basis. Mm. And they may have never done something like that where you go in and you try to do better than what you've done before. Like that takes a very particular type of mentality. Um, I always say, you know, there's screws loose in all of our heads that would do this. You know, like there's something rattling around. And that's sometimes what I say, like, I'm going to go and rattle those screws around because it's time <laughs> to go, baby. Like, let's get after this. And it's a blast. I, I was I, I was I was thinking today, <clears throat> I'm glad it didn't happen. But I, I'm back in my, you know, back porch training alone. And there's no one like I've got just like woods behind me and there's no one walking along that well, there might have been. I didn't notice. But. I'm training. I, I was screaming and yelling. Like it must've sounded like I was just murdering <laughs> dozens of people. And I'm thinking, Oh shit, I have to do an interview. Hopefully I don't lose my voice. Cause that happens sometimes. And um, that's just absolutely glorious fun for me. And yeah. some people just know they want to do that. So they might, they might hold, you hold a little bit back. If you're going to do three sets, you might hold a little bit back. Um, and you find out real quickly. I've had people start, start on type teal two or, even tier three, because on paper it looks pretty easy, right? Mm. But the way things are set up with stopping one or two reps shy of failure on the loading sets, the failure points, the way I sort of engineered all the set types so that they have to be brutal. Mm. They have to be potent in terms of the stimulus. And most people who start, women do pretty well with the higher volume tiers. They recover better than men, generally speaking. But, um, and that's sort of what I had in mind. But a lot of guys don't, most guys don't go to tier three. Um, Unless they're doing like right now, I did tier three for thighs, but I'm not training with the frequency that yeah. fortitude training. So I knew I could do that because I'll have take tomorrow off to do upper body and come back and do legs two days after that. So more of a DC training style frequency. So I knew I could get away with that. If I were going to train and do uh, pump sets for lower body tomorrow or two days from now, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Tier three is too much for me. I, I learned that I, I made sure I did that. I did it when I was prepping for show and it was too much and I carried it on and I like literally I crossed the line. I'm like, okay, that's the line. Pretty sure that's the line. Don't go over that again. So I learned that because I wanted to experience those things. But yeah, there's, there's, and things will vary off season versus in season, like even dietarily, you know, you, 
someone like all of a sudden decides they don't want to eat any more salmon and, and the next thing you know they're running low on EFAs and and there's and there's have a little more of a pro-inflammatory type diet they may end up feeling more sore um, they start eating more processed food trying to get down the calories and next thing you know they they're just sore all the time well they might have to train with a lower training volume before they rectify that so there's just so many different variables and it's just nice to have to take that aspect of the thinking out pick a tier do it you know run it through i've got people and you, i'm sure you've seen this maybe with clients too you sort of set them up on a training program and they haven't even done what you're suggesting and the first thing they want to do is change it and i'm like yeah you don't even like you don't even understand what i've set out for you yet yeah. so l learn that first and the nice thing about fortitude training that and it's kind of paying out this way and i and i and i say this um not as a cop-out but you can people can now compare um tier one tier two and tier three as i've set them out so they can literally there there are you know hundreds and thousands of people now who know what tier they use and they can compare like you two guys can and you know categorically like i'm a tier two person i'm a tier three person tier one's all i can handle tier one's all i need um and when you've done that for a while then you've then you've okay, i can move down a little bit or move beyond that and that's what people should do but then on the other hand with all the flexibility it may it this just doesn't make sense i think to have people completely black and white put in like this is the exercise you have to do on this particular day regardless of how bad it feels or what have you that's just it's not even common sense and the nice thing about doing that with bodybuilders is if you want to be hardcore then you follow the instructions of the program it's not hardcore to like persist with an exercise that's just destroying your joints Oh, that's the, ten, the, the mentality and the tendency you'd see a lot of times. So it literally on the muscle rounds, like I would love, I want people to put variety in on the exercises they use there because of what we already spoken about. Yeah. So keeping on doing like the hardest ones you can do and not auto-regulating, that's, that's like, you know, from a militaristic standpoint, you're not, you're not obeying, the, obeying the orders of the program if you do it that way you're yeah. missing out on what's there. So I think that's one of the reasons why I've got a lot of people, especially some of the older guys who've come from more of that kind of a mentality where you just, you know, keep back, you know, if the knees hurt, you, you, you wrap tighter, that kind of mentality. <laughs> um, and now they start adding variety and working around the niggles and those sorts of things. And then they get their, their musculoskeletal system gets healthier because yeah. of it. And that's just awesome to hear. So then that means you can train harder. So I built, I built some variety in there and self-selection and then some structure just to kind of balance those, the needs for both of those things. Talk me through uh, one thing I did want to ask at some point on this podcast was David Henry. Okay. Yeah. What does his yeah. training look like? Cause that guy is a freak. <laughs> yeah. He, he was a freak, you know, when I first met him, you know, he's just, it's amazing. Dave's like a Lamborghini, you know, like as far as a say what? He doesn't train. No, he doesn't train at all. Yeah, <laughs> I, actually, I think he won his first show as a kid, and he had never trained. He hadn't stepped foot in the gym. He just went on what? stage and won like a team division. I think that's the story. It's on his website, I think. Yeah, yeah, he's Dave's. Dave's. I mean, that it's. I'll tell you. You've heard me tell my my favorite Dave story in regard to that. No, like, go on. So this was this was like, I think this this was two thousand and nine. So. David just won the, the 202 
Mr. Olympia. And so Dave and I would, you know, I would, I was training you for, to win the, in the, do the state shows in Arizona and Dave's been a pro for a few years at that point, obviously pretty damn good pro. And he's like placing top 10 at the Olympia. He's got like 10th at the, in the open Olympia. And then he won the 202 Mr. Olympia. And so we're both dieting down and training for shows. We've trained together for like five or six years. And what we do is we train, then we go and we pose and I'd run him through and he'd run me through. Sometimes his wife, Nikki, would be there running us both through. And uh, so Dave and I are both there. We're both dieted down. We're pretty freaking tired and we're, we're done. It's kind of like, we don't have the energy like to pack up our shit. We're just kind of like, kind of waiting for when we feel motivated to, to actually leave the gym. And Dave, we're just standing there and Dave just kind of looks kind of in the mirror and he's like, you know, man, it's crazy. Cause like we've been training the same way and doing the same stuff now for so many years and our bodies look so different. And I'm like, Dave, you're fucking Mr. Olympia. And I'm just trying to win my state show. <laughs> yes. There's a little bit of difference in our physiques. <laughs> and he didn't mean it in any like derogatory way whatsoever. He was just like, kind of like commenting on the obvious, but it was so funny. So I've always like Dave, when I would train with Dave, like the only time I would ever look like I was, and I never looked like I was bigger than Dave. The only time I looked even remotely close was when I was at like 260 and he was like dieted down and like, you know, close to 200. And then he still looked bigger than me just because his muscles are so fucking round and crazy. like, yeah, he's just amazing. So he does fortitude training. He does standard fortitude training. We've got a couple things. He actually, is he, is he like a higher volume guy or would he, would he stick relatively low? He uses, um, he has to drop, we keep his tier for his legs actually lower than okay. his upper body. But yeah, he does, he does like two or three for upper body and one, two, usually two for legs or even one when he gets closer to a show. Mm. He was doing high volume when we first started training. And because um, that's the thing with, with people who have the genetics of most pros is, you know, they drive by the gym and they gain a couple ounces of muscle. They don't, they just, you know, almost everything will work. Yeah. And I first started training, we bumped at each other in the gym and I think like we wanted to use the same machine or something. We started training and I just, he's the pro, you know, so I just said, I'll work in with him. And I was very competitive. You'll laugh at this comment. You'll get this. So he's doing this high volume stuff and Dave was stronger than me on, on most things, but I wasn't going to let that mean that he beat me in the gym. So we do like do a set and Dave would do like, you know, 12 reps, you know, and stop. And he might have like two or three left in the tank. Cause that's what you need to do to get away with doing the higher volume training. Whereas, you know, I'd maybe get like seven and then I'd make, make it into a widow maker until I got 13. So I could beat him by a rep. But <laughs> all of my sets were just like, you know, everything I could possibly do. And he's like leaving reps in the tank. And after like two or three months of that, I would literally, I was just like, my whole body was inflamed. Like all, I would just sit there and just be throbbing with inflammation. I was just a fucking wreck. It was crazy from just way overdoing it. So I introduced it. I started doing DC training. I think we stopped training for a while. Or I had been doing that, um, which matched with almost everything I was doing except for the rest pause set. And I suggested, yep. let's give this a shot, Dave, and see. You know what'll what'll happen? I was I was happy to get away from the volume training because I wasn't going to survive it. You know, yeah. and um and that's when Dave started working with Dante, and then I learned DC training, and the rest is kind of in the book. I, actually, I spoke to Dante on Instagram um the other day because I tried to get him on the podcast, but I think he's just too busy. Um, He'll ne he he won't do it. Like, no, he's he never like, done. He's a like, podcast, sorry, I, sorry, I don't have any time. I was like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
yeah. Where, where did like your the principles that you've used in Fortitude? Where was that born in your head? Like after you after you ran DC and then thought I could probably add to this or it literally. I mean, I started doing. I was living in in I was living in California. I was actually a college professor because I've been training since I was eleven. So I'm coming up on yeah forty years now. Um, so I was doing basically. I kind of come around to something really really similar to DC training as being a very effective for me. And then I literally read the cycles per penny thread. And I'm like, well, I think I'm going to, I like this variety. I like what this guy's saying. This matches with my concepts as well. I didn't know Dante at the time. I just knew him from, from that thread. Eventually we, of course we met and became friends. And so then I did strict DC training um, just with Dave. Dave was trained by Dante and I was the, I was privy to the emails and those sorts of things. So we did that together. And then Dante made me, um, Long, some various things happen. He put me in charge as his sort of official trainer. So he would send me clients and I would do DC training. And in the course of that, of doing that, um, there's all like, there's a standard DC training switch you'll see on intense muscle. Mm. Um, and Dante's posts about other things, but you know, when Dante works with someone or when he used to, he would do various things that you don't see as part of those splits. There's obviously some, you know, some intuition and there's some workarounds and various things. So, I was doing those things with people now and again too. I wanted, I always tried to stick to what Dante wanted because I was sort of his representative as DC training. So I would, yeah. if I could get a hold of him and he was, he was burning out on training big time. So it was almost impossible to get him to talk about it, but I checked those things with him. And then I did like one instance. I, um, I've actually done with this with both arms. I had some a minor tricep tear. And so I literally couldn't train, do any pressing. So it, so delts, you know, were pretty much out. I had to do all sort of all isolation work. And when I reintroduced tricep training, um, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't producing tremendous force. I didn't want to re-rip that area. It's kind of a small divot. You can't even really see it unless you're looking for it. But it was enough to make me concerned that I might have a bigger tear. So I started doing higher rep stuff. Like I was, I'm just going to like pick a really lightweight and try like, you know, 30, 40 reps. And I just started doing that and I kept my reps above above 20 for sure. And I'm like, my triceps are growing really well from this. Mm. Aside from the little hole, they started looking really good. So I sort of through through happenstance came to the notion of pump sets. So I started adding in some variety and I just basically, I just want to create as tension and prolong it as long as I can, just like the pump sets are. And I realized and the research about that time was, I don't even know if, if some of the higher, rep low load training it even even really been hadn't been been publicized on social media as it has been now um some of those things were probably out in the literature but some of that data started being produced so i realized that that was a tremendous way to grow so that brought into my mind you know we've got this idea of um kind of con i call it sometimes conjugate bodybuilding or just using the different set types mm. as they ended up being in fortitude training those are all potent hypertrophic stimuli and they're also um, complementary in a way too. So, and I recognize that if you get used to doing high rep work, for instance, on legs, let's say you're doing like, you know, Widowmaker style things. And this was for DC training too. Then when you do a heavy set of six or eight, it's still brutal. But what you went through on a Widowmaker, a lot of people would say 20 rep sets are tougher than six to eight rep sets overall. Mm -hmm. So when you get some, some, uh, you get a change in your perspective, you can kind of contextualize the difficulty 
differently after doing those high rep sets. Plus you probably get some muscle endurance that yeah. then carries over in a way that allows you to get a rep or two more on the heavy loading stuff, which means you get a strength advantage. So when you go back and you pick up the lighter stuff, it feels lighter. And that has an impact too. Like one of the worst things you want to feel when you pick up a heavy load is, Oh shit, I'm going to get crushed. Yeah. You never want to let that, like the mentality has to be gravity is my bitch right now. And I'm going to manhandle this load. Yeah. You do that and you pick it up, then you're good. If you get under the bar and it's like, Oh shit, that's probably, you many will want to just rack it and step back and start again. Yeah. So those two things would complement each other. And I really liked, um, um, the idea of cluster sets, rest, pause training, and the story that I put in the book uh, that kind of kind of forced me to sort of bring everything together and actually create the system was a period of time when I wanted to try uh, Leo Costa's Titan training. Okay. And yeah, so you, people can find that he he did Big Beyond Belief, which was okay, the high yeah. frequency type. Yep. Yeah. And the tight and then that one I I read about that. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to survive this. There's just too much volume there. I I knew that much. But the, uh, the Titan training is a little bit different, but he didn't have explicit instructions in there how to, how to do his muscle rounds. And I kept that term, so I didn't want to like feel people to think that I sort of stole it from him without giving him credit. So his were, his were sets of four. And the sets of four there, he didn't say anything about failure points or what load you're going to pick or what have you. So you know, being a, a, having some screws that were loose in my head, I figured I'll just make it as hard as I possibly can. So that meant like, if I'm going to do a muscle round for like rack deads, and I don't even have people doing those because of the low back issues, but I would just pick the hardest exercises and make them as hard as possible. So I do something like, I don't know, like 700 pounds and I get like a set of four and then I, then I get a set of three and then I drop it down, you know, pull some quarters or 45s off and then do another set of four and barely get it. And then do like a set of two drop set again, another set of four and then a set of two. So it's like three failure points. And there would be a lot of those. And I noticed initially, this was after a show, I was making phenomenal gains training with that higher frequency, using the muscle rounds. And I can't remember the other aspects of this program. It's been a long time, but I knew I actually, for the first time I overtrained myself. Mm. Um, I went, he suggested going, I think, eight weeks. So he had that sort of written in stone. If I had stopped at like four or five, I would have been great. Yeah. I would have recovered. So I learned that lesson there. I also learned, which something I knew from previous experiences that failure points um, have to be really considered um, very carefully because the difference between stopping one or two reps shy of an actual failure point and taking a set until you literally are pushing with everything you have and you can't get another rep is fairly substantial. The inroads into recovery from a true failure point versus one or two reps shy um, is, is a great bit. And yep. literature also supports the idea generally, at least in untrained folks that you get just about as much out of um, failure training or non-failure training, one or two reps short than you do out of failure training. And that's now known as this effective reps concept. So I programmed that in too, because I experienced that I was doing, I literally was trying to make, I was trying to fix weights on those muscle rounds so that I was like coming as close to failure as possible or failing on each of the sets of four. So sometimes it'd be like literally four failure points mm. and just try to, and, and that was just destroying me. 
So the higher frequency came together, the idea of doing muscle rounds and keeping one failure point in there and one failure point only, and, but having as many quote-unquote effective reps. By the way, those, the load is dropped down to finish the set if you failed before the sixth set of the muscle round. Um, also, the idea uh, from Widowmakers, which are awesome, and I learned this, is that if you do a Widowmaker, you get really, really good at extending the set. You can make, you know, make it into a five-minute set. If you just can wait long enough and just eke out rep by rep, but the more you do that, the more it destroys you. So what I started experimenting with and doing was keeping those, the reps continuous so that you don't have those pauses and you don't have the inroads to recovery of almost failing multiple times. You have an almost failure point, you know, one or two times, depending on, number of the volume two you're at and then you have one failure point so accumulate as much muscle loading and much stimulus um, as possible while avoiding the neurological impact of failure points so i put those into the loading sets and i put those into the muscle rounds and i included the pump sets as a very auto-regulated way to get the take the advantages of the higher rep muscle muscle endurance metabolic stress type of stimulus yeah. So I wanted to have all the different stimuli focusing on muscle, not neurological, and thus endocrine and immunological stresses. And in a high-frequency regime, um, the idea being that um, you know, people would call it growth, growth opportunities. If you look at the muscle protein synthesis literature, it sort of suggests that you know, maybe in 24 hours, that's sort of turned off. So you want to keep that moving all along. And one of the things too that I've kind of come to recognize, this may not be in the in the book so much, is from what I can find, I'm waiting for more literature on this, but from what I can find, um, if someone is in a, in, uh, they're a responder, so the people, like Dave's a responder, someone who grows really well, they have a very robust satellite cell um, response in terms of um, proliferation and differentiation, incorporation of those nuclei to increase the cell's nuclei so that you have a, a myonuclear domain ratio that stays where, where a cell would want to be as it gets larger. Mm. And those who don't grow well, don't. Mm. So my thought is that um, pros who grow really well from doing almost anything, they have a very robust uh, response to those satellite cells. And that is about a five or six day process. If you look at what happens in some of the markers for satellite cell differentiation. So train once, you get a good response in the satellite cells, that's proceeding for just about a week. So the bro split of once a week training is gonna work really well for bros who are pros, so yeah. to speak. Whereas someone else, and this is exactly what people do when they're trying to bring up weak muscle groups, is they train them more frequently. Happens all, it's one of the most effective approaches. As long as you're doing good training, you're not training like an idiot. You've got a good stimulus. If you can do it more often, that tends to bring up muscle groups. That may be because you're, you're repeatedly exposing the cell to the stimulus that produces that satellite cell proliferation, satellite cell response, which seems to be very, very important for making muscle grow in most circumstances. And maybe it is that repeatedly exposing the satellite cells to the growth factors and other things that turn on their response is something that's key to why a high frequency approach works 
in people that in stubborn muscles and maybe why people who don't grow like pros do would do better with training more frequently. Yeah. And maybe pros would do better training more frequently too. Who's to say those, my guess is those guys are, they're really so big anyway. They probably, there's probably a ceiling effect and it doesn't matter so much, yeah. but okay. for someone who doesn't have great responsiveness, you want more frequency. So I basically took those ingredients of frequency, avoid the neuro, neurological inroads, use the high, the high reps, the low reps, take advantage of the uh, more effective reps in a muscle round. And the, re, the, the idea we want to have different volume tiers because people have different levels of recovery based on various things. Those are my ingredients, and I put them together and out popped fortitude training. Mm. That was wow. one of the things on muscle rounds. I'll just touch on that was that why I gravitate so much towards them because I'm, I know the whole concept of like effective reps is somewhat debatable, but I'm like yeah. a big, you know, in terms of like getting to a point where you're so, you know, there's so much peripheral fatigue and you've got, you know, so you know, you've got full spectrum motor unit recruitment and the contraction velocity is slowed down. So like the rate at which you're moving, the load is slowed, everything like that. Like it, it, it's all, Pretty, you know, it, it's pretty logical and it is relatively well researched as well. So it's hard to throw out, and that's something I like to focus on. And that was one of the things with muscle rounds where I really enjoyed that I found I was able to kind of get more effective reps whilst having the one failure point. So it seemed I was getting less of that kind of the drawback, you know, the kind of essentially the central nervous system fatigue um, mm-hmm. that you would get where you're kind of having to reach failure more frequently to get the same amount of effective reps. So I, that was one of the things that I think is really cool and like works very, very well. And if there's people out there that are finding the same, that they maybe have to tolerate more volume and they're finding they get battered from having to go to failure so often in a session, maybe incorporating this sort of approach can work quite well. Yeah. I, I think there's that. And that was exactly why I, you know, why I did it that way. Cause I learned the hard way, all those failure when I was doing the, the Titan training failure, muscle rounds the failure points were just destroying me but also the thing that i encourage people to do as well when they drop the weight so let's say you you get three sets of four and you fail in the fourth set of the muscle round and then you drop the load down you know you've got no more failure points Hmm. so so that so that that sort of goal that carrot is you know or or that idea that i'm going to hit failure again is gone and what I tell people to do now, I want you to reset your mind and have absolutely, utterly perfect mind-muscle connection. So almost everyone, like when you're actually at failure, here's some squirming you're going to do, some wiggling around, like, you know, you may try to hitch the weight or something like that. Like, it's just part of like putting forth that massive effort. I think Talon was very good at not doing this. A lot of people are as well. But when you drop the weight down, then you can refocus on what you want to get out of that exercise. So you may have been incrementally using some of the accessory muscles more so until you reach that failure point. And then you drop the weight down. It's like, okay, now we're going back to just the muscle I want to hit. So not only those are effective reps, they may be even especially effective in that you've got, you don't have to worry about failure. You have to worry about anything except nailing the target muscle. And then I think that carries over. A better mind-muscle connection is pretty much always going to be a good thing. Mm. That's one of the things I do. It's not in the context of a muscle round, but it was, it was sometime last year I kind of started putting it in client programs where they would do a top set where they'd push to failure. And then the second set I would call an, an back off. internally focused back off set where they would go. reduce the load by 
20, 30% and match whatever reps they just got on the top step. But the focus isn't on trying to reach failure. It's trying to make those reps as hard as possible from an internal standpoint, how much force you're generating throughout start. I love that. That's awesome. They, they're quite popular. I mean, you tried it as well, Kyle, I think. It was good. It was good. good. It's also a nice way of, you get a nice, you know, a very powerful stimulus, but without the kind of, the battering so to speak that the for the with the nervous system would get exposed to if you try to go to failure because again like you mentioned earlier that the higher reps are, are harder and i think some people would agree when you do like a top set of maybe six to ten and then a back off that's like 10 to 15 reps which is they're you know very common numbers that people use mm. 10 to 15 sets almost harder to go to failure on considering you've always already just gone to failure on the first set right and then go to failure using you know they've got essentially perform what would equate to a longer set and then reach failure. I think that's kind of somewhat more taxing or I don't know. I don't know if it's more taxing. I don't know. But I think a lot of people, like I, for instance, would always struggle because like I can, I would say I know what it's like to push to failure. I always found the higher rep back off sets more daunting than the top sets that were kind of lower rep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they are. I think they are in, in many cases. Yeah. That's, that's part of what I wanted to do and what we're going to jump to the other, another set type, but with the, uh, the pump sets yeah. is literally, it's sort of like, imagine you're backstage and I mean, the, no one care. You, no one's going to count the number. It's like, Oh, that guy did 30 push-ups, So this guy did 50. So the guy who did 50 is going to, he's going to place higher than the other guy. Like it, it makes no difference what you do. You just want to get a pump yeah. and it doesn't you know, just pick up the bands you can find or whatever it is, but you're trying to pump up the muscle. And that's the idea of the pump set. So it doesn't matter if you do full range of motion or if you do five good reps and then you find like, ah, this feels really good. This part of the range of motion, you start doing some partials. Um, You just want to, to really just with laser like focus, hit that muscle um, and make sure that nothing else is creating the, the end of that set. It's because that muscle just simply can't contract strong enough to keep the weight moving or even to hold it up. And so it's very, it's, it's, it's funny because some people even say that the pump sets are harder than anything else. And they definitely can be, especially for legs. Um, but if you're doing them right, then yeah, you've got, you've got that, you've got that advantage that it's just, it's all on the muscle that you're trying to hit. And that's, a, that's a great, that's the way really you should have that to some degree during everything, essentially, you know, yeah. unless you're a power lifter. The bodybuilder, yeah. the mindless connection should be there pretty much around the around the clock with every set. 100%. It's something I, I brought up. We did this live event um, where we spoke. It was in the context of exercise mechanics. Um, and I brought it up in there that one of the benefits of this home phase training that everyone's having to go through where they're using lighter loads and they're having to really learn how to generate tension internally is going to be that, that they improve that skill. And then when you consider that, essentially the main formula for mechanical tension in, is internal force production plus external load and then plus or minus peripheral fatigue. The, um, I think when they can learn to increase that internal force production component by itself, you know, like you say in the pump sets, they aren't relying on external load. They're relying on how far can they take the set from a f- fatigue perspective and how, f- how, f- how much internal force can they generate using lower loads. So there's mm-hmm. so much value in that. That then again, which is why fortitude training is such a smart system because they all feed into one another. You then bring that into the skill of improving internal force production over to the heavier loads, and you get more out of them. So it's yeah. Awesome. yeah, 
I mean, if, if you, for instance, have used the leg press when you did, um, let's say your pump sets or even your muscle rounds for thighs, and you're also using leg presses as one of the, your rota- one of the exercises you rotate through for your loading sets. And you, you've like, let's say you're doing the pump sets, you know, you really focus because that's all you have to do is have a good mind muscle connection and bring that muscle to fatigue, make sure it's the weak link. And you do the muscle rounds, maybe the way I mentioned where you move your feet around. So you're just, you're just changing a little bit. So you make sure that each of those sets is as hard on the quads as you possibly can. Those were your last two leg workouts. And now you come around to your leg press. And if you were someone who tended to just like let your hips kind of come up on the leg press and maybe your range of motion would get a little bit shorter when you try to go heavier and you're doing all the, all the things that people would typically do to just keep the weight moving and, and progress, it's going to be obvious to you that this is categorically different than what you've been doing. And it'll probably feel in the context of those other internally directed strategies, like I'm obviously making a mistake. This is not what I need to be doing for my leg press. I need to tighten up my form and basically do at least some semblance of the same thing. I can be a little more aggressive, maybe a little more explosive, keep the weight moving. You know, this is going to be a heavier type thing. So it makes sense that your mentality would be a little bit different. But if you're sort of quote unquote lifting like an asshole on those loading sets relative to what you've been doing on the others, you're going to know it. So you're right. It all feeds around. I think, I mean, I think doing that will make people better lifters. Um, and I noticed it, what it did for me, you know, when I did that, when I had the triceps issues, um, I took that idea and I also like, well, this makes sense. My triceps, why don't I do this? I should do this all the time with all the muscle groups. Um, that's one of the things people have balked at. I've had people, um, contact me and want me to like train them in person, which I, I can do actually at a gym here. I've got a place I can do camps, but, um, and they'll say, well, we're going to, you know, we don't have to do uh, fortitude training, but I think the best way to make you grow, you've come to me because you've got some muscle groups that don't grow is we're going to train with some frequency. So for instance, legs would be trained maybe three times a week or at least twice a week. And this is usually from someone who's been using a bro split. And when, uh, when I say that, they're like, you know, train legs three times a week. I'm like, yeah, you're not going to do like, if you're doing 20 sets, we might, you know, instead of doing 20, we might do five each day or something like that. So you're not going to try to do 20 sets. You're not going to triple your volume. You're just going to spread the volume out over three different workouts. It's like, I'm going to train three times a week. Like, yeah, but it's not like they can't wrap their mind around that idea, you know? So that's, that's the thing that I think is, is nice. There's probably also a practice effect that comes into play too. So you're nervous. You're going to get stronger just because you're, you're doing some of those exercises or one similar to those more frequently as opposed to once a week. And that's not the best thing necessarily, but if it means you can handle good uh, higher loads and you're still keeping that good mind muscle connection, then the practice is on having a better mind muscle connection. And that's a good thing to have, have a learning effect on, I think. Yeah. And that's where I think for beginners and stuff, that approach and that stuff we've used, I know you did this when you were M10, I think you presented on it there. Um, but the, you know, for beginners, the focus shouldn't be on how Jack can I get it. It potentially should be how, how well can I acquire the skill of mm. being track muscle tissue and, you know, perform these different movements and learn the motor patterns and all this stuff. Um, and they're, therefore the high frequency approach can be very helpful on that front you know you're, mm-hmm. you're practicing it more often so yeah i think that's that's 
another plus for it for sure. I'd say, in my head personally, when you split that up into, say you've got 20 sets across a week, but you split that into three sessions, my ability to like be accurate and very, very to the point in terms of intensity, if I have a smaller amount of workload for the day is much better than if I have, if I know I've got, if I've done set one and I've got 19 sets to do, I'm like, oh God, by set like seven, yeah. I'm, I'm done mentally. Whereas if I've got two or three sets to do, it's like I can be razor sharp with all of those sets and then just move on. Mm-hmm. You have to be as well. Yeah. If someone, if someone said you're you're going to do quad stay, but you've got you you only got two sets. You'd be like, "Fuck, I'm gonna I'm making count." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, and, and if you know you've got twenty, you're gonna sandbag. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's where the when you say about effective reps, it's like if you're training on that on that kind of quote unquote higher volume gross bit. How many sets of those twenty? working sets are going to be involving effective reps. Maybe the first like one to four and then the rest is just going to be junk. You, you probably know, like, junk volume. It could be, you could expand it to effective sets and it's like, oh, yeah. that, oh there's only really three effective sets in there. Sweet. Why don't you just do those three? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's a, uh, I can forward this to you guys. There's a nice review. I think the group maybe from South America, I can't remember the first author's name right now, but, um, they uh, they have a figure that I've borrowed for a few presentations, and um, basically they, if you look at this in terms of like for instance muscle protein synthesis, you've got there's some dose response that happens there. So you know one set will give you a, a X amount of protein synthesis relative to protein breakdown, and two sets will give you maybe a little bit more, and three sets a little bit more, and protein synthesis at least in the limited data that are out there seems to go up in, in parallel with breakdown. Breakdown is sort of hard to measure, I think. So they just measure protein synthesis and, and that's, you know, sort of thought of as at least from the, that metabolic aspect of the adaptations going on, like that's, that's representative of what's going on. So eventually you might get to, let's say five, and that's where your optimal protein synthesis is. Um, and maybe like then when you get to seven and 10, <laughs> 20 sets, you're probably not getting much more in terms of actual protein synthesis. Um, but you're, you're, you're sure as hell are probably going to break down a lot more muscle. You're going you're gonna to just literally from the extra contractions in muscle that's already been mechanically damaged, you're going to further cause further disarray. It's kind of like, um, I just thought of this analogy. This is a kind of a, a brutal one, but it's like, imagine like you've, you're, you've got like a, a kind of a really thick beard and not so, so good of a razor and you're going to you're going to shave, you know, and it takes like maybe three or four runs to kind of get down to the skin. And then you, you're, you know, you're going to, I guess, get more hair if you keep shaving into your skin because the hair fog is, but you're just damaging your skin. You're just destroying your skin and you'll recover. You could do that a week later to come back to that. But what if you just shaved down to where you really needed to and then came back and did it a couple of days later, much less damaging. So and, and that's what, I, are you guys familiar with the, the studies that Damas has done the first? Uh, they've done some really cool stuff, but some of the studies on muscle protein synthesis and how that correlates with eventual muscle growth over the course of a, a training period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's actually a couple studies. Um, one was from Stu Phillips' lab, for instance, and, and they, you would expect that if, and this is what sort of the assumption has been, is that you look at the, the protein synthetic response on day one of a training program. And some people are going to grow really well. There's going to be responders and, you know, extreme and moderate and maybe non-responders. 
So you would expect that the protein synthesis response at the beginning of training is going to predict, be predictive of the growth trajectory that they have over the course of the 12 weeks of training. The people who have the greatest protein synthetic response will have the greatest growth response over the course of the training program. And if you measure that on day one, like literally one of the studies, the correlation was 0.01. It was like nothing. It was as close to zilch as it could possibly be. And so, but things are different when you first start off a training plan versus when you've gone a couple of weeks into it, because as you mentioned, there's that um, repeated bout effect that comes into play. So Damas, they actually did a, a first session um, measurement and they waited three weeks into, I think a 12 week training pr program. The first session of measurement, zero correlation, nothing. When they waited three weeks in after the muscle soreness had subsided, then they found correlations um, uh, of like uh, 0.7 to 0.8. Very strong correlations with muscle fiber growth with the um, protein synthetic response over the first four to six hours after the, those workouts. So what's different there is the amount of damage that's incurred, the soreness and everything else. And my interpretation of that, and I believe it was what they were thinking as well, there's something categorically different between day one and after you've gotten past those, that initial soreness. And the initial soreness that's so strong suggests a lot of, broke, a lot of breakdown. And much of the protein synthesis, if it's not going at that point in time in the direction that predicts muscle growth, it's going somewhere else. It's trying to keep up with the repair that was brought on by, in this case, what was really kind of an excessive stimulus for producing growth. Once you adapt to that, it's more appropriate. And then you can measure protein synthesis. The people who turn that on the best are the ones that grow the best. But when you've trained so hard or it's a first session where you've got so much soreness and breakdown, you may have a situation where you literally have exceeded the muscle's protein synthetic resources. Mm -hmm. So it just can't build muscle at that point in time because it's got just trying to like take care of the breakdown that was brought on by what was initially an excessive stimulus, or if you're training with high volume with a bunch of junk volume, all you're, all you're doing is producing more breakdown and you're basically superseding um, your, your muscle's ability to, to make up for that and actually add and add to the myo, the contractile material and actually grow muscle. Mm. So too much soreness is not a good thing. Mm. Too much volume is not a good thing. Yeah. I think I put I, I I'm just I just pulled out the ebook right because I wrote similar stuff in there that essentially we can't assume and a lot of people do that muscle protein synthesis equals muscle gain, but obviously muscle muscle repair and muscle building are completely different things. Like if you damage tissue, there's that's you know have to rebuild that, repair those protein structures and stuff, but obviously isn't the same. So obviously, yeah, that that's a very interesting point to make that people can completely dig themselves into a hole in it and yeah be any benefit in that at all and there's a study that um uh, uh, greg knuckles uh, i think has a review on on mass and i just came across through my email um and uh, wernbaum is the uh, it's he's the second author i can't remember the first author he wrote a really nice he's done some nice work high load bfr training or low high load versus low load bfr training a 2007 review article that's outstanding on um frequency and volume in terms of eventual muscle growth. And in this study, uh, kind of a bizarre, I just talked about this the other day on my own podcast, but kind of a bizarre training program. They did BFR training. 
And I think it was like seven sessions in the span of five days, something like that. Um, so they had two training, two training periods, very short. Yeah, it was very odd. But it, it, it demonstrates something pretty cool, which I think it's the first time this has been demonstrated. It's very, very, um, very interesting. And then they had like, I think, 10 days off. And then they did another training session. Um, and then they followed them up for like 30, maybe even 30 days. And the first, first go round, they actually found that muscle mass, went, muscle size went down, fiber size decreased. Because that was just, it was too much. It was seven sessions in five days. Some of those were two a days. So I think it's just knee extensions, blood flow restriction. And so they, they kind of crept back. I believe they crept back to where they started after that, that first 10 day break. And then they trained them again. And we know that the protective effect, the repeated bout effect lasts months to some degree. So it's fairly persistent. So whatever they, something was changed in that first training um, about, or that tr training block. And they actually overtrained though, technically, at least from a muscle size perspective. Train them again like that. And what they found then was like 10 to 20 days later, they had a rebound effect. And muscle size was actually, it wasn't bigger immediately afterwards, but when they waited 20 days later, they had greater muscle size. And strength was actually increased too. I can't remember if it was at both 10 and 20 days, but it was like literally they had to wait longer than the actual training block for those growth adaptations to manifest. So, but they didn't do anything. They rested. Yeah. So that's interesting. It's yeah. very interesting, especially because it took so long. Yeah. So this is one of the things that I think make I see this phenomenon with with fortitude training. There's I haven't talked about this yet, but there's a periodization scheme that's very simple there. Um, that really the the cruise or the deload is just a taper, but it has a period of no training. And many people, if they do that right, if they push hard enough. Um, not so much that they're getting into like a D uh, or an overtraining situation, but what you want to have is technically a functional overreaching, which I believe you could say that they, they literally had in that second training block in this study. They didn't lose size, um, but they created an inroad. Um, if they'd have kept doing that, they probably would have lost size, but they stopped. And then they had functional overreaching in that, it was functional because they ended up with a, a rebound type of effect, an adaptation that manifested long after they stopped training. So that's the thing I think that can be important for people to know. And I've, you know, I think some people will probably have seen this if they like got locked out of their gym and maybe at first they're like, ah, you know, screw it, whatever. Maybe they start eating more than they normally would. They come off their diet and they like bulk up a bit. And then like they go in, if they had, if they could get back in their gym two weeks later, I wouldn't be surprised that they were stronger than where they, when they left. Mm -hmm. And some people I know because there's maybe less stress for them, they're bought, they're getting some recomp effects, mm -hmm. um, you know, so they they literally think they're getting leaner and gaining size because they've been forced to step away from the gym. Yeah. So I think a lot of people and Cal, this may be why you did so well with that low training volume is that you're, you weren't overreaching to some degree, like a lot of us probably are and have been for, for years, you know, and when I, when I took time off, it was like five to seven days completely off training as well. Yeah. Did you come back stronger when you restarted the next? Yeah. It's the, it's the first, it was the first ever time where I've come back and like, I've immediately started to like beat numbers consistently as well. So it was really interesting. Yeah.
I had um, a similar thing. So this literally exact phenomenon seems to have happened with my one of my clients where he he didn't stop training, but it really lowered the stimulus. Like he didn't, he barely had anything for the first three weeks of lockdown, three four weeks. Um, mm. Well, yeah, but by this point, it was about three weeks. Yeah, and every check in, it was like okay, his weight's going up, but he's getting leaner. And he was even noticing it. And he messaged me today, being like, I've just hit 189 pounds. And last time I was here, I was 20% body fat. So what the fuck? Um, and, and we were kind of like, he's just stopped training. He's done a little bit, but nothing crazy. And he just continually adapted, it seemed, across this period. And we were, and I said to him, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chalk it up to, you know, the fact that we put the stimulus in place. And then also now you're sleeping more. There's less stress because he's not working, obviously. He's, he's able to eat, he's able to chill out a bit more and it just seemed to completely go in his favour. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely yeah. does. Crazy. One thing you'll notice, like, and there's other things at play, I think, but a lot of the really good pro bodybuilders, they're really chill guys. Yeah. Yeah, like Dexter and Ronnie and Jay Cutler's, you know, pretty low stress guy. Like, a lot of the really good, like, they, they know how to chill. They know how to turn it on in the gym and the rest of the time they're just relaxed. So I think, I think probably that's the thing. Our systems are muscle mass is little, is, is such an expensive adaptation. You know, it's really, especially for those who don't have good genetics for it. And there's so many ways that we can adapt, um, you know, in terms of muscle endurance, like literally fiber types start shifting. Like after the first exercise bout, your nervous system can start adapting. There's so many ways your, your body will start to adapt right off the bat. Um, that are just easier and quicker and make much more sense than spending all the energy and, and making sure there's, if there's, assuming there's plenty of nutrients to grow muscle. But now we got a situation where like literally there's food aplenty. You've got this, you know, very infrequent, maybe reduced stimulus. And finally you've got the right balance of recovery to stimulus in order to produce some more muscle growth. So people are probably, probably learning like, you know what, I've been doing too much. Yeah. And it might be worth it to try to start sleeping a little bit more and, uh, you know, chilling out as much as I can. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Amen. Sure. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap. We've, we've basically been on the call for about six hours. So I'm going to wrap up with, uh, just so we don't take, don't take all of Scott's week apart. Right. There's, there's a couple of questions, Scott, that we always finish with. So we're going to fire them at you now. Uh Oh, Oh, okay. So who are the top three people you've learned off in your career as an educator and as an athlete? Uh, gosh, I want to, well, Gary, Gary Dudley was my mentor for my PhD. Okay. And he, like, no one would know who he is unless you, you know, an exercise physiologist, someone like that. Um, I learned a lot from him. I have to say, I, I, I want to say, I would say Dante too, just because, a lot of the ideas I had, like the same ideas, but he, but he just sort of, um, you know, he's so, so well respected. I'm like, there, there, there was the confirmation of a lot of things. And we, we've, we, we were uh, super moderators on intense muscle for years. Mm-hmm. So we went back and forth. Like there've been several times when, I um, mean, you know, there are things that popped into my head during even this conversation that Dante shared that things were just, I'd kind of knew that I, I don't want to say, but things that, that matched up with what we've talked about. Cause sometimes you talk about things he, he was doing with people that he didn't want to make public. Um, and the, the third one in my bodybuilding career, Hmm. It'd have to be, 
I would, I'm going to just, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of uh, cheat on that one. I'm going to say the people that helped me as that were the beta testers for fortitude training, because I had, I had a woman, I think I just had one woman. I had, I had one guy who just like you tier one was almost, it was almost too much for him. Yeah. This guy would have been a pro. He was a, Canadian, a weight class winner at the Canadian nationals. Didn't win the overall, so he didn't get his pro card. He trained like a monster. He was a former WWE, WWF wrestler. Wow. And another guy who trained really hard who could do tier three. And I'm like, okay, this, this confirms, like, I got so much confirmation that I got to learn from them. They helped me out. Um, I also learned there were a lot of people who said they were going to do the training plan, and they didn't do it. Like, I had so many people who just backed out. So I have to thank those people, too. Like, that, that was a tremendous learning period with that group of people because some of them – showed me what I thought. Some of them taught me some things I didn't know. And then I also learned that people are going to balk at this training style just because they don't like how it looks on paper. They just yeah. don't want to do it. So that's sort of my third, I'll call it a group. Top, top three people you've ever trained with and why? Oh, I'm going to say, you know, you, you, someone you won't even know. Um, Gary Harpole was my uh, a training partner that I had when I was a kid, when we, we grew up together. He's now a triathlete, pretty intense guy. Triathletes are about the only group of athletes that maybe are as crazy or crazier than bodybuilders. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're crazy. Um, we did uh, cybergenics together. So do you know what that program is? No. It's old. Franco Santoriello is, is a, a guy you can look up. He's on Facebook, still I'm friends with him. He was the poster boy for that. That program was just absolutely insane here's what you did I, i'll tell you this because your listeners are probably like this i mentioned this before but like you would start off and i think you did i think you did this three times but maybe it was five i can't remember now each of the workouts took three hours they were done fast in the morning you trained six days a week <laughs> what three-way split yes so here's what you do for le for legs like you do this at least three times you'd start off and you do um like a six to eight rep range squats to positive and concentric failure. So four straps until you can't hold the weight, strip it down, positive failure, negative failure until you can't hold the weight, strip it down, positive failure, negative failure until you can't hold the weight, strip it down. Then you do body weight jumps until you can no longer jump off the ground. And then you do grab like a post, like on the squat rack and do deep knee bends until you can no longer stand up under your own power. And then pull yourself up and do negatives until you can no longer stand. <laughs> and then you lie on the ground and contract your legs as hard as you can for 30 to 60 seconds. That's one set. You did three of those. Wow. And then you did like a bunch of like everything was like drop sets to positive and negative failure. And it was like really low calories. You'd come back after doing that on Monday and you and like I'd eat like a thousand calories a day. One of those years I was actually working um, on outside job mowing lawns and like doing uh, landscaping and shit. And then <laughs> I'd come in and do that again on Thursday. And I did this with my buddy Gary. Um, and we used to just, we were just so competitive, just so competitive. So yeah, we just trained like absolute idiots. You know? did, you see, did you see much progress on it? I look, yeah, actually, I, I, I don't know how much weight I gained on my body totally recomped. Yeah. I mean, I look, I looked the best I ever had. I was, I did it like three times. I think the one time was in this, in that summer and I may have gained a little bit of weight, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I had to, and everything seemed easy. Like I went back to normal training 
and like a regular set, you know, to absolute failure was like, yeah, and like, <laughs> ain't shit. So there was Gary, of course, Dave, you know, Dave and I trained for years yeah. together. And um, probably I've done a lot of my training. Most people who train with me don't last very long. <laughs> so I haven't had, I haven't had a lot of people who wanted to train with me, but most people don't last very long. And probably John Meadows. We trained okay. together a few times, but they've always been fun. You know, we, we train like um, uh, at the lead FDS a couple times um, mm. with Dave, Tate, one of those, two of those times. And those were fun. So just cause every time it's been a good time, once a couple, not this past year, two or three years ago at the Arnold, John and I, we trained and we did like chest and shoulders or something like that and filmed a bunch of stuff. And we went and had pancakes and filmed some video. And then we went to his house and, took a nap and then all the Canadian guys, Antoine and Fuad and all those guys came down and went and trained again. <laughs> and then we went and had all you can eat sushi pretty much. And then had sorbet and ice cream afterwards. So it was like one day, two training sessions. Like that's the kind of stuff. Like when I train with John, they're always good training sessions. They're always fun. So I'll probably say John, but I haven't had most of my training has been alone. It's been with, with mainly Dave. Yeah. And I want to throw Mike Gustafson in there. A good buddy from, from home. He trained with us a good bit. He's fun to train with. Um, probably because he's kind of an idiot too. He just does stupid <laughs> shit and it makes it enjoyable. So, um, but yeah, those three, those three of those four guys. The, the last question would be you as yourself now with all of the experience you've had from a research perspective and in the trenches, if you were to look back and give your 20 year old self advice on what you've learned so far in your bodybuilding career, what would it be? Um, while I'm young and healthy, like I would like not, I wouldn't do the volume training stuff that I did and, and try to spend this time producing as much of a massive base, so to speak, in terms of strength and size. Um, you know, I would probably tell myself like, see, don't compete quite as much and just try to spend some more time getting as large as humanly possible. Um, I mean, I've, I've gotten, you know, to 260 on a couple occasions, not terribly sloppy, but that's not as big as I maybe could have gotten. I spent 10 years like doing 20 sets of 20 squats. I did, I had a period when I was doing shit like that because I just got screws loose and that <laughs> didn't help me. So I would, I would say recognize you're an idiot and you love to train like an idiot, but, but train a little more, a little more sane with little bouts of insanity Keeps you, keeps you where you want to be, a little bit on the edge, yep. and focus more on size than what I did, I think. So in other words, you would bring the Fortitude ebook back. For yeah. Your yes. yeah. <laughs> yep. I would open up the doors on the DeLorean, yeah, and say, here, read this, read this. I'd close it in and get back out of there. <laughs> One thing uh, occurred to me that I've, I forgot, I don't know why it's occurred to me now, but you mentioned earlier about trying to design, like get the perfect rep where you're kind of dealing with, you know, more load on the, on the eccentric than the concentric. Have you ever used yeah. um, Kaiser kit? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Pressure stuff. Oh, the, the, the cons, is it con- pneumatic concentric only or. No, it's, 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 it's interesting, but you, you can basically alter it as you do it. So you and James has it. Yeah. We've got it at the gym. I train at down here and, James, who works with us, has it in gym, who's like, which is like ten minutes from Cal. Um, and you bet you, so you can alter it mid rep, so you can basically increase the load as you go through the eccentric. So you and can you do it manually. Yeah, yeah. So you can. Oh. Do it. 
on the handles. And they're, they're relatively yeah. easy to get hold of because a lot of people don't know the value of them at all. So if you can get hold yeah. of them in the States, like they're awesome. And they're generally well designed from a profile perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Um, really I'll, cool. I'll, I'll look for that. If I ever I decide to open another gym, yeah. I'll find that Life Fitness had some equipment like that too. There was a, a magnetically braked stuff. And I think it always kept you like, 12 reps or 14 reps like all the sets were like the same and the first couple reps you would sort of ramp you up to whatever weight you put in and you could do equal concentric versus eccentric or you could do like a 20 percent overload so you would do a knee extension the first two reps were a little bit easier and then and it, it, i think he was still overloading on the eccentric and then you'd push up and then it would drive you back down with 20 percent more and um yeah, that's what isokinetic training will do too, but you can't do that, you know, yeah. lots of ways. I think as well, like the, I mean, it sounds like it would be the case on that, like on the Kaiser stuff, there's like, because it's compressors, you know, you're not dealing with any inertia, so you're not dealing, you're not moving against gravity. So if you're going to do like explosive stuff, you're potentially going to have less, you know, work taken away from you there, which is pretty cool. But yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Uh, have they done any studies with that? It would be a very interesting thing to study. Um, I don't know. I'll look out for it. Yeah. yeah. I, I did. Um, I used a, um, an ice connect dynamometer for my dissertation. We used e-stim for the yeah. training and you know, you can produce, uh, using e-stim, you can produce a muscle growth with this dynamometer at about twice the rate as you can with voluntary doing the same number of sets, at least from the one study that had been done previously by someone who worked with, with Dudley. So we did that to create a, a greater magnitude of effect. Um, and then we tested creatine supplementation and creatine didn't seem to do much. Um, that was the bottom line of that. But the, the training was on a dynamometer. So um, it controlled the speed. It was basically nine degrees per second. And you push up as hard as you could from the very first rep and it would only let you go at 90 degrees per second. And then he'd bring you back down to 90 degrees per second as long as you kept on pushing. Didn't matter how hard you pushed, machine was stronger than any human being by far. Yeah. So every rep from start to finish was, if you did it voluntarily, could be maximal effort. Mm. And what, what the e-stim does is e-stim overrides that neurological inhibition that happens even with max effort. You have some inhibition <clears throat> such that like a max effort at a given speed on an eccentric might be 20% greater than an isometric in voluntary contractions. But if you look at isolated muscle, it might be 40% higher, at least in human isolated muscle. And that's because there's just a natural inhibition. It's probably a protective in nature that prevents you from fully activating during an eccentric, even if you've got a dynamometer that's pushing you back down. Um, so that's naturally there. Well, we, instead of, we use the dynamometer, which has that advantage of, you know, it's just going to move back and forth at the speed you set it at. And we used e-stim. So the e-stim would produce the contraction in the quad that would extend the knee. The e-stim would would turn on, there'd be a knee extension to full extension, and then the e-stim would stay on and the machine would drive the leg back down um, and override all that inhibition that normally would be there. So the same motor units that were on on the way up with the same motor units that are on the way down. So you've got to see the intrinsic force production capability of the activated muscle on that eccentric. So I would watch on the screen, you could watch the torque production. 
and each each kind of read like this. I'll kind of do it backwards. But each each rep would come up and come back down, and that's just a function of the biomechanics of the knee. You know, you've got only the torque production is about 60 degrees. Knee flexion is its best, I think. So you'd go up and then come back down near the end, and then when it would change directions, the eccentric, you get this giant huge spike in force. And we progressively increase the starting forces with the stem. So put the pads on and I could increase the current to produce more force. And that would, that was progressively overload over the course of time. So I think we started at like 70% enough East stem to give 70% of an MVC and isometric MVC and ended with like 90 to 95. And those forces on those eccentrics were like 130, 140% of, of voluntary and that's with less than maximal, less than um, all the muscle being used. Yeah. So that muscle that was activated on those particular days was being forced to produce maximal eccentric force because of the way we set configured the East stem machine. And that's why over like an eight week training program, you can get more muscle growth um, in that setup than you would even with voluntary training, which still had the advantage of being able to produce allow you to have max efforts on both the concentric and eccentric. So yeah, there's something to say, like if that's why like this new fit, the newbie that people are talking about, I haven't, I've actually looked through the patents for those. Um, and I haven't ever tried one. There's one here in Tampa. I need to get down and once I, once I can get down and check it out, but that's supposedly what Dexter used to help bring his legs up. And um, Makes sense. yeah, so there's some there that's been around for a while. So the East stem and the, I've got an article that I um, kind of co-wrote or actually kind of co-edited with, with Gary Dudley that's in, um, in a power and strength book um, that Comey put out years ago on E-STEM use um, in this sort of context and the Eastern Bloc people, the Russians, they've, they've been using E-STEM to like superimpose E-STEM to um, try to enhance the contractions, enhance the ad adaptations that come about from training for many years now. So, Unreal. Yeah, but having more eccentric is is generally a, a good thing, I think. But I still like your idea with or what you've been doing with the, the Hoffman reps. Hoffman reps. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll call them them. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. No, that was a cool tangent. That was a cool tangent. Yeah, yeah. It's cool stuff. Yeah, so there's so much more that we can't produce, you know, with regular training. That's what I mean, like, because, you know, in the regular eccentric that we were seeing in the gym, you know, you're just losing the tug of war. Yeah, it's nothing comparable to that, isn't it? Yeah. You don't see many people doing like press with one, lower with press with two, lower with one. Yes, yes, what that you know, I've put that in a few people's plans actually. Yeah. yeah. Same idea, I suppose, yeah. 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 There we go. Epic. I think if we if we didn't close this, we would actually talk forever. So I'm Yeah, gonna... <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, you guys I know it's getting late there. Well not that late. You guys are it's only four hours. Yes, so. uh, half six, it's all right. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Scott. That's been epic. Yeah, you're welcome, gentlemen. Where Thanks, can we, pleasure. where can we like find you on socials and website, etc.? Uh, Fortitude Training is the easiest thing. Fortitude underscore Training on Instagram, and just type in Scott Stevenson Meathead, and you'll you'll find me on Google or Bodybuilding Meathead, something like that. I, yeah. I come up pretty well, so I'll, um, we'll put all the links in the bio uh, in the show notes. Yeah, uh, cool. the. Uh, Especially because there's going to be a lot of people that go, oh, where, where can I, where can I read more about this? Just buy the Fortitude Training ebook, guys. Because yeah, it's cool. it's twenty bucks, and so people know. Um, 
if, if you buy the book, it's all in your purchase email, but I have a discussion board where I've been answering questions about fortitude training for like five years. People like you can ask whatever you want. I have, I have some people that ask me all sorts of, like we were talking about, you know, analysis of variance and P values and what they really mean and all sorts of things. So I have people that ask me all sorts of questions and, and, and pick my brain. So I just do that as a service to anyone who's gone so far as to, to put in 20 bucks to buy the ebook. I want to make sure that they can apply the program. And then, you know, that means they've sort of helped me out. I'll answer their questions. So I answer questions about all sorts of things. Amazing. So it's one thing that pisses me off when people message me on Instagram. They're like, mate, can you uh, share the ebook with me? Or can you share? And I was like, you can buy it actually. Cause somebody's gone out their way to write that for a good time. So yeah. Buy it. Yeah. I had, I had somebody, um, it was with my, other book my be your own bodybuilding coach book which yep. has leaked out and it's pirated oh. and um and this yeah it's so happy yeah i don't no one buys the pdf for me they buy it from the pirated sites i'm pre pretty sure because i people will load it into their cart like i get about 60 carts that are loaded up a week and maybe one purchase so i think oh, they're really? buying it elsewhere because that's yeah. another phenomenal bit yeah. Yeah. oh yeah it's it's all good uh, people buy the hardcover i probably won't do another ebook but this guy, and this is the, I think the mindset that you're talking about. And I, I don't think that people are like thinking, yeah, I'm going to just, I, I don't give a shit about this guy. I just want to like steal his work or whatever. I think there's just kind of a block, but this guy, he messaged me and he had some questions and he bought my Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book. And I said, you know what? I'd like to answer those questions so everyone can read them. Um, can you send me the transaction ID from your Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book? And he's like, He's like, well, yeah, I can, but I, I didn't buy it from you. I'm like, oh, you bought it from like uh, the, one of these pirate places. And he's, he's, like, he's like, yeah, I mean, I, it cost more to buy it from you. So I bought it from the pirate, one of these pirates. And he knew this. And I, he, I said, well, you know, I don't feel so obliged to help you out so much. I'll answer your question here. And he's like, man, they ripped me off. That sucks. He was pissed that he got jaded, that he, he was the one who knowingly stole the book sort of from me from the pirate but he was upset because of his dis the, what happened to him he just didn't see the fact that this is a, an intellectual theft of sort mm -hmm. it's an ip intellectual property theft he didn't didn't quite get get that idea and i think that's that's just sort of a function of the newer generation they just they don't see the connection quite yet because there's so much stuff that's free yeah so I think the best way, like sometimes you want to just say, oh, come on, you lazy bastard, you cheap bastard, like just buy it from the guy who wrote it. Yeah. But that won't get through to people. I think the idea is, is like you have to recognize that there's like that's a real person who spent like in the beer on bodybuilding. It took me three years to write that book. It took a it's while. Like, look, to at the, look at the references. It's literally like 50 pages of references. <laughs> I, I think it's closer to 100. It's yeah. like a lot. It's mad. <laughs> yeah. So then it took a while, but people don't, they don't quite make that connection. If they haven't written something or like produced works of art or something like that, where that kind of intellectual property theft, they just don't get it. Mm. So. But yeah, I mean, I'm. I'm writing an ebook at the moment on home-based training and how people can optimize that, which I'm going to be giving out for free, but I can just say just from this one, which is not small, but it's not big and, it, and I can just fully appreciate how much work's going to have gone into those two. That is if someone's going to steal that, that happens. It's years and years, isn't it? It's years and years of work. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Total theft. But they don't, but that's, they don't think of it as theft. I no. don't think. And that's, that's the thing. And that's, that's, I think, where you got to, like, this is one of my principles with just teaching and helping people in general. I, I know we're going to call this quits here, but this last thought, I promise. 
is that you kind of kind of start where the person is. So if someone asks like, you know, something about training and I immediately I start, you know, stammering off with all this scientific terminology, I'm going to lose them. And if someone has sort of just, well, I just bought the book where it was cheapest. What's, what's wrong with that? And I, you know, I, I lay into them because they stole my work and I'm all, they're not, that's not going to resonate with them. So I think that's, you know, what has to happen is that people recognize that there are people like all over the world who are stealing people's intellectual property. It's almost like someone went into Barnes and Noble and they picked the book off the shelf and they went and, you know, sold it in the back alley. It's, it's kind of like that's that it's that kind of thing. No sale proceeds went to the author, mm. and it's hard. That's a difficult thing for people to get with the um, with PDFs and things because it's just they come around your your computer and people lose them and they don't think much of them. So anyway, that's a message to anyone. Is I would love for you to buy it from me, and I'll I'll help you out on my board. If you buy the Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book, you can also get a free membership on my board. Just message me and let me know, you know, and I'll uh, I'll hook you up. And they're both available on the fortitudetraining.com links. Yeah, it's .net, but cool. um, yeah, yeah. It, I have a I have beyourownbodybuildingcoach.com, byobbcoach.com, drscottstevenson.com, fortitudetraining.net. We'll they all go all. to the same place. I'm going to link them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're all, I mean, you just type Scott Stevenson bodybuilding and it all gets you to the same spot and then yeah. you navigate the site. It's pretty easy to find. Sweet. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. It's been really, really Welcome, good. Welcome, guys. Yep. Thank Enjoy you, sir. Your nights. See you guys.